Clinton. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. I hope you've had a fantastic week. I hope you have exciting weekend plans. Been a big week in the media, a lot to address, a lot of notable names in attendance tonight. My first guest has had a hell, hell of a life. Very excited to talk to him. Very impressive resume. We have Joe Broccato with us. Joe, how are you? First time on Rory Sauter in the News. It is an honor to have you here, sir. Uh, first and foremost, give us a bio, a background, a resume. Tell us how it all started for you. Because I know it's been quite the journey. It has, Rory. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, thanks for coming, thank man. Thank you for coming. No, I truly appreciate the opportunity. Um, I'm here in Chicago. Great. And, That's where uh, my dad was born and raised, south side of Chicago, when he was awesome. a young kid. And then he, you know, grew up. You know, he, he, he grew up, you know, in Chicago, pretty, pretty um, you know, uh, less fortunate and uh, kind of uh, in poverty. And then when he got older, he built an empire. So it was a beautiful thing. That's America. We got to love it. Um, same story with my father coming from uh, Sicily when he was 13 years old. Uh, not a lot in their pocket and made their way. And it was a very impressive thing to watch, certainly as a child. And uh, actually, in my new book, I uh, you know talk a little bit about my dad and my family. So uh, you have to go back to your roots, no doubt about it. But uh, so, yeah, I'm here in Chicago, uh, born and bred and um, uh, I'm a lawyer and uh, head up our transactional practice. So I'm a deal maker. Uh, I find compromise and I get deals done. And over the course of about 31 years now uh, practicing law, developing a lot of business for my law firm, mm -hmm. just dealing with clients and potential clients and referral sources as much as I do with really contacts uh, globally, I started to notice some patterns, um, ways that people interacted with each other, communicated. And I started to figure out some sort of a formula or a system that I could use and hopefully share with others to hit it off with someone from the moment you meet them and then developing a long-term emotional connection with them to really build what I call a unique relationship, one that's difficult, if not impossible to replace. And I think that's the best type of relationship we can build, whether in life or in business, so I try to encapsulate all this in my new book, Hit It Off. And I just happen to have, Rory, believe it or not, a copy of my book right here. And uh, it's Hit It Off, 21 Rules for Mastering the Art and Science of Relationships in Life and Business. I, I love it. I love it. And, and, and talk about the process and, you know, how long it took, took you to write this book. What kind of due diligence did you do? I'm sure, you know. There, there was a, a significant amount of backspacing and wanting to make this as perfectly, uh, you know, presentable and, and transparent and, and to the point as possible. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I actually believe I started writing this book when I was a kid wow. um, simply because everything that led up to writing this, which I started right. physically writing at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. Um, but, you know, I really started learning from an early age about, you know, how to interact with people and uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of missteps, a lot of a lot of challenges. And frankly, I, you know, know a lot of these things intuitively and 
lot of the things in my book, these 21 rules are common sense. However, as we all know, common sense isn't as common as it used to be, or perhaps as much as we would want it to be. And so I realized that, you know, as I started doing research on the various intuitive things in the book, I realized that I think maybe a reason why a lot of people don't practice these rules, if you will, is because we really don't know a lot about the science and a lot about the efficacy of these intuitive things. So I think if if people knew a little bit more about the science, then they would practice these things a little bit more. And that was the whole idea. So I did a lot of research, psychological, sociological, and business studies, a lot of expert commentary around these intuitive common sense things. And that's where I married the science with the intuitive, with the common sense. And I think that's where true mastery is. Yeah, and isn't it fascinating? You know, I I, I love what you just said, and I, I found I found it just quite incredible and like i said fascinating how you were writing this book you know it seems like ever since you were a kid because it's like you keep experiencing these different journeys and these different encounters and these Mm -hmm. different experiences along the way and it's like you have to put it in the book because it it goes with it you know what i mean like i'm sure you know in your law practice in your in your business practice and everything you've done in life um, you know, you're always learning something and, and you're always taking away something that you could probably use in your everyday life and would probably be beneficial for this book. Absolutely. And, and a big part of life is achieving our goals. Right. And in every relationship, really, the whole idea is to get to a goal. Right. And a lot of times <clears throat> our pursuit of goals is very inefficient, whether in business or in life generally, in any sort of personal relationship. So the whole idea is really to become more efficient in getting to the goal faster, making sure it's the right goal for you. That's an authentic goal. Science shows that if we don't set authentic goals, i.e. we have inauthentic goals, it's going to be harder to achieve them. Uh, It's going to take longer to achieve them. And frankly, if we achieve them, we're not going to be happy. So the whole idea is to be happy, achieve the goals that we want to achieve. And the idea really was to make life a little bit, a little bit easier by having this toolbox of rules that we all can implement in practice. There's a ton of exercises in the book. People can start practicing this stuff right away. Uh, None of it's difficult at all, frankly, it's fairly easy. But once we understand the power of the science behind it and bring that to bear with practicality, everybody has the ability to maximize the likelihood of achieving all their goals. And Joe, I have to ask you, how many, again, how many different um, chapters and lessons are in this book? Sure. So we've got 21 rules. Okay. And we've got an introduction and certainly a conclusion. And then after that, there's a number of pages of exercises. We've got five questions that you answer and implement in your life, in your business, et cetera for each of these rules. So there's a lot of content and a lot of ways to really start mastering this stuff right away. Now, I have to ask you, um, in this book, is this, is is some of these chapters, some of these lessons from other professionals that kind of contributed to your book, or is this all you of what you've experienced? Well, like I said, there's a, there's certainly, there's both, right? There, there's the, the practicality of what I have experienced. Yeah. 
then as I did the research, I obviously have incorporated a lot of other folks' science and brought into it. For yeah. example, there's a whole there's a whole rule around um, the application and importance of properly being sensitive to emotional intelligence. And Dan Goldman was a, a, a very uh, obviously preeminent individual with that particular science. So a lot of what he has is in the book, uh, what he has said. And, and obviously it's very important for me to have not just Joe talking about these things, because I'm just one person, to really get, capture the catalog and the collective consciousness around these things and put them in one succinct book to make it really easy for the reader. No, I, I like I like that, and, and I'm I'm reading here. Um, you know, and and, and give, give I want to give, give us a few examples, like the, the, the in the book, what sticks out the most in terms of you find the most significant, the most effective. If you had to pick top three of these 21 chapters, what would you tell the audience to focus on first and then kind of go to the other ones? Absolutely. So what's interesting about the- Because I, I, think, I think one would be hard, so that's why I just said top three. <laughs> well, I always like having a choice, right? So um, no, they're, 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 each of the rules will resonate differently with people. Um, I'll, I'll just go over a few that just personally resonated with me as I did more of the research. Um, what is about active listening, conscious listening? Um, you know, listening is, is, is not a passive act. It's actually a very proactive act. It's not just listening to words and an auditory process. You have to understand what the words mean and you have to make sure you understand what they mean because you don't have the background the individual has. You don't have the backstory. You don't understand the intent necessarily just from the words. So it's really important that you focus. And a lot of what I talk about is really applying critical thinking and mindfulness to the interpersonal dynamics. So when you are communicating effectively, i.e. listening, when you're assessing information very carefully and you're leaving your biases and prejudgments at the door as much as you possibly can, you're going to be able to understand and empathize with the other person much better. Another role is around respect. And I referenced my family early on. I told a heartwarming story, I think, about uh, growing up and uh, having uh, Sunday dinners, you know, you haven't figured it out. I'm Italian, or as my father would say, I'm half Italian, half Sicilian. But, uh, but the know, best types, man, the best types. Exactly, yeah. So I learned about respect around the, 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 the kitchen table. And, and I really believe that we have as a society, both in life generally and in business, certainly, we've lost the art of respect and really understanding what respect means. It's about dignifying the individual that you're dealing with as a human being. We can have all the differences we want, but how do we really understand an individual and give honor to that person? And that's something that we really need to remember. The third thing I'll bring up really is around um, if we disagree with people, and this happens all the time, it happens in certainly politics, it happens in business, it happens in relationships generally, my whole point is if we do disagree, really try to find that common ground. And what that's all about is around governing values. How can we rally around things that we all agree upon and really pivot conversations in that direction? It eliminates a lot of inefficiency. And remember, the whole idea here is to achieve a goal. 
So if we're off on tangents and we're arguing about things that truly don't mean a whole lot, you know, we're not going to get to the goal. And one of the problems and what science really addresses is what's known as the illusion of explanatory depth. So when people are arguing, they're giving their opinions, basically what the illusion of explanatory depth means is that we tend to confuse uh, a shallow understanding of general concepts with real in-depth knowledge. And we end up basically going in circles with each other. Basically, we think we know more than we do about a particular topic. And so the science shows that if people communicate that way and they really don't acknowledge that they don't understand the depth, we're never going to get to compromise. We're never going to get to our goals. It's going to be very difficult to get to our goals. And that's really not a great way to communicate with other people. So the whole thing is really keeping in mindset about what goal you have in the relationship, using those three tools and the other rules in the book to really help you get to your goal most efficiently. I love it. And, and Joe, I have to ask you, how do we restore proper ethics and proper morals into the workplace? And how do we bring God back into the workplace? Because when we take God out of the picture, bad things happen. We're well, seeing, sorry, it, seeing it right now, for instance. Look at all the misery and the tragedy that's occurring everywhere. Every day we wake up and we read about a new tragedy. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with taking God out of the picture and people promoting a lot of these demonic, satanic, ESG, communist ideologies. And it's, it's terrible. Well, um, what's interesting is that as part of my research, I uh, stumbled across a few very interesting facts. So the Harvard Business Review uh, did an article uh, that published um, uh, the results of a, of, a, of a study that was done that reported about incivility in the workplace. And 78% of respondents um, uh, uh, basically stated that they witness incivility. This is disrespect, this is rudeness, and other insensitive behavior at least once a month. 70% of respondents reported witnessing incivility two to three times a month. And really, the, the whole idea is that it's like the common cold, it's contagious. And, and, and that's a big part of my message. I want to restore civility to our interpersonal dynamic. And it's very, very difficult to get that point across because we seem to be in a society now where everybody's negative, everybody's against something. You know, people aren't practicing conscious listening. They're not respecting other people. They're not trying to find common ground. And I think that's really going to be the key in terms of really instilling and reinstilling civility back into our, into our society. And how do you feel about all this wokeness, virtue sig signaling, propaganda nonsense that keeps going on and on and on? It seems like it's getting worse. Well, you know, one of the nice things about my message is that it's very apolitical. You know, my, my message really is to bring people together. Yeah. And like I said, with respect to the concept of respect, you know, we may or may not disagree on uh, people generally may or may not disagree on you know, you know, the concept of wokeness or this or that. But the whole point really is to, you know, if you if you do disagree, if you find something isn't according to what you would like it to be, yeah. we really have to retrain our minds and, and certainly understand the individual, what they're trying to get across, their backstory. And again, we may not be able to come to a complete agreement, but maybe we can find that common ground and really instill trust because we're going a little bit in each direction. 
I think that's really what's going to move us forward uh, in a very material way, because it seems like we're just locked right now. We're at a standstill in many in many ways uh, in, in, in society, and it doesn't have to be that way. Well, do you think there a lot of the damage is done with just the political divide and how the corporate America environment has changed in the last 10 to 20 years with like the cult minded personality. I mean, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Like if you don't fit in somebody's circle politically, you know, they want to ruin you, stuff like that. I, I don't know if you've ever looked at that. Yeah. And I think the concept of, you know, of ruining people is just a bad idea. Yeah. Um, you know, People are out to ruin other people for whatever reason. I've always thought extremism on both sides, both sides, yeah. is 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 really imprudence. Uh, it's really not the way to go in our society. And I think most people in America, and and certainly I hope globally, are very reasonable people and yeah. and, and and centric in many ways. And we need to have political institutions. If we're going to talk about political institutions, we have to have leaders really on both sides or any side you want to say that really understands that, you know, we don't want to be on the extremes. We want to kind of be where it makes sense, where it's most practical for the most people. And that's really what we're lacking right now. And there's a lot of human nature that goes into these political systems. It's very, very difficult to overcome that. But I do believe that if people practice, if all of our politicians on any side of the aisle you want to talk about, truly followed these 21 rules in every interaction with their opponents, uh, in, in every vote, in every discussion, in every interaction that they have generally with their constituents, I believe, I postulate that we can be in a much different environment, a much more healthy environment, more collaborative environment. And that's really what I'd like to see. And Joe, do you, don't you think it's fair to say, you know, you've done a lot of research, you've done your due diligence that this country mostly mainly is a mo is a moderate country politically. I, I think that we're a very reasonable people. I mean, people that I talk to right. um, who, frankly, may or may not have, you know, different political views that, um, you know, are, are, are consistent, inconsistent with other people that I know. Most people that I meet are very reasonable. And they can find common ground and understand right and wrong, right? Exactly. That's the key. And we have to be willing to, like I said, leave our bias and judgment at the door. Very difficult to do as human beings. And I understand that. But we it's possible to do. And like I said, I do deals. I mean, in every deal, you have two sides. Yeah. And there's no way deals get done unless there's compromise. And I believe that our society, our political institutions, our, our relationships generally really need to focus on that compromise. And that's the only way that we're going to survive as a community. Right. And you were talking about common sense earlier. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had a common sense political party? Wouldn't that be nice? That would be fantastic. I would love to see that. That would be fantastic. I'm uh, waiting for that. <laughs> I feel like we could bring people together. Um, I want to ask you, you know, so you're a senior partner with uh, Gazdecki, uh, Del Guidance. Del Judas, yeah. Del, Del Judas, Americus, Farkas, and Bracada LLP, uh, which is a prominent Chicago law firm. But at each of those places, um, 
talk about your day-to-day operations. Sure. So we're a boutique firm uh, here in Chicago with a national uh, practice. So you, you're involved with all those law firms I just mentioned. Actually, that's one law firm. And we recently had a change in the firm name. It's uh, Gazdecki, Del Judas, Americas, and Bricado. So, um, but yeah, we, we are a business law firm, both on the transactional and litigation side. And we represent family-owned or otherwise closely held businesses from startup to multi-billion dollar uh, companies, as well as several pri- uh, public companies. So we're, we're, we're a very high level of sophistication, although we're a boutique firm, but because we have a boutique firm rate structure, our value proposition is very compelling. So we're a great alternative to a lot of the larger firms because we tend to have lawyers from the big firms who are in our boutique setting. So we're able to provide that very high level of sophistication without the overhead and that larger firm rate structure. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of VC stuff over there. VC, PE, pick your letters, we're doing it. Nice, man. And, and what's your like biggest, most proudest deal that you've ever done? Because I, I, mean, I know you've done a lot. And if you can't name one, name a couple. <laughs> well, I, I have done many, many, many deals, and um, you know, you've been, it's in really, the game a long, you've been in the game a long time. I can imagine it, it's been a it's been a long time. But I always tell folks that I I truly do sincerely love what I do. Yeah. I love my clients, um, and frankly, I've done so many deals that each and every one of them it's like picking your your favorite child. Right. You know, I, I have four kids, and I, I, there's no way I'd be able to, to pick my favorite child. Yeah. I love them equally the same. But uh, right. I've been blessed with, with a great clientele. I've been blessed with great colleagues and partners over the years and uh, very excited about, frankly, the next 31 years of my practice. So, Joe, in all of your years, how many transactions have you done? How many business dealings? How many VC deals? Oh my God, um, I, I I couldn't even put a number out at this point. Um, Would you say over a hundred? Over a hundred? Oh gosh, well over a hundred. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting because there are different size of deals, and you know, from up to you know six billion plus, and and a lot lower. It, it just depends on you know how quickly things go, and but we do a ton of stuff, and we're a great alternative, frankly. I've always enjoyed working with people who are entrepreneurial. Uh, whether within a, a family-owned or otherwise closely held business, or entrepreneurial groups within very large public companies, uh, it's truly an honor to work with people who have a passion for what they do, similar to how I have a passion for what I do. I love it. I love it. And how long does this sort of process take when you go out, seek the funds, get everything together, established, paperwork signed, deal done? Give us like a time frame. I mean, I know every deal can be different. Yeah, right, right. But if right. you had to say on average, what what would you say? You know, it is every deal is is different. Right. Um, I've seen things come together uh, in as short as uh, thirty days for a, a larger deal to you know well over a year. Sometimes it literally just depends. Mm-hmm. I think sixty to ninety days is a is a nice range. If yeah. deals can get done uh, that are larger. And uh, a lot depends on the, the clients and opposing counsel and uh, the reasonableness, frankly, and their ability to find common ground. See, if they applied one of my rules, if opposing counsel applied my rules all the time, then we'd get to deals a lot faster. I've been blessed because many, many of the opposing counsel that I've personally worked with have practiced those rules. So it's been a very pleasant process. 
Uh, I love advocating for my clients. And when we need to, we are fierce advocates. But it's all about the relationship you build with opposing counsel as well. Again, it's all about efficiency, treating them with respect, treating clients and the other clients with respect, and developing that level of trust. And that's how you get deals done quickly. That's how you find compromise. And frankly, when a deal gets done, that's the common goal that everybody wants. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this business obviously is about believing in the individual, believing in the business concept. But at the same time, it is a risk, uh, just like, you know, a lot of things. But what is the success rate uh, that you've seen with the investments you've made? Like, what would you give a percentage? Investments I have made? Oh, I mean, in regards to the VC deals you've made. In terms of being the lawyer and working and out just like them still being afloat them still running day to day oh, like because yeah. i know businesses can fail things can happen things can backfire but success rate so far like if you had to give a percentage of the ones that you funded that actually are, are still in existence and, and succeeding i'd say the vast majority of them oh wow um, yeah wow. the vast majority Wow. You know, in, in, at our level, we tend to be dealing with clients that are very astute. They're very, very smart yeah. and they make excellent business decisions. And I think that really helps the success rate. Yeah, man, that's cool. And so like, like give us like a, a like just a different, like kind of example and, and variety of things that you'll fund. Like what, what do you direct your focus towards? What kind of kind of stuff? Well, again, um, if it's in terms of the, doing the legal work and putting the technology, deal, real estate, do you do all that stuff? One of the nice things about our, our firm and my practice and my client base is we're in a number of different verticals. Healthcare is really hot right now. Technology is really hot right now. Um, we do a ton of commercial real estate. Um, in trouble. Big trouble. Well, uh, there, there are there, you know, it, it's been challenging for certain asset classes. Um, and, you know, it, it's important for, you know, clients that are, um, you know, weathering a storm right now to really um, buckle up and to continue to, because they're all excellent, excellent decision makers, continue to make really good business decisions. Because that can make or break the company, just given the climate right now with interest rates and things like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in every, just about every vertical, um, you know, I do some entertainment stuff. We do uh, certainly all sorts of PE and VC work in, in a lot of different uh, areas. And it's been a nice variety. And that's one of the great things, you know, we're not pigeonholed in one area right. and we are able to, you know, provide our expertise, I think, to a, a wide array of clientele. You know, and I know yeah, I can tell you're a, a very humble, down-to-earth guy, and uh, maybe you don't like to talk about numbers, but what is the largest deal uh, that you ever got into as a VC? Well, again, um, I'm speaking solely based on uh, deals that I have worked on. Yes. Uh, been, been in and around. That's what I mean. Yeah. I mean. yeah. Uh, in the billions. Uh, in the billions. And, uh, you know, it's been... Uh, those are deals that require a lot of legwork, obviously, yeah. and a lot of uh, good people to get it done. It's a team effort, right. uh, just like anything in life. You know, nothing really, it's very difficult to get something done alone. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because if you want to achieve your goals, no matter what they are, mm -hmm. um, you need other people. 
And I make that point in the book. You need other people. Nothing gets done unless you have other people to help you get to where you need to go. And the best relationship you can have with that individual is, like what I said, a unique relationship that's difficult, if not impossible to replace. Because if you have that, you've just enhanced the potential to achieve your goal. So I think if people really harness both the science and the intuitive, bring them together and master these principles, they're going to be well on their way to achieving any success that they want. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the main big things in business and succeeding is having a way with people, being able to bring people together into a room and really make a deal. And that's that's exactly how my father was. And I picked up a lot of his traits and a lot of his characteristics. And, you know, I, I practiced that exact curriculum because this guy was like no other. Unfortunately, you know, he passed uh, about 11 years ago and, you know, he was my he was my everything. He was my best friend, my coach, my soulmate, coached all my teams. I mean, just the best father any kid could ask for. And just, you know, a guy that played minor league baseball, got injured, went and worked odd jobs, and then built a huge real estate empire. I mean, he was owning high A, a plus high rise buildings. He was getting about 97% funding from like Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs. These were like $500 million buildings back in 2007, 2006, before the collapse. And then when the collapse happened, the banks came for him. But before that, like I said, they were funding him 97% and he would get 3% from private investors. Sounds like a, a great ride. And um, yeah. Yeah, it, he, it, yeah, he said in his career, he closed over 10 billion with a B in real estate transactions. Well, it's a, like I said earlier, it's a great testament to our country yeah. that he was able to do that. In five um, years. He did that in five years. Is that pretty good in five years? Over, over 10 well, billion. It's, it, it's almost unheard of. Yeah. It's I mean, almost unheard of, frankly, to do that, that, that level of deal uh, activity. But, you know, yeah, Arizona, was, Nevada, California, and Washington is where all his stuff was. That's that's great. You know, your, your dad's story reminds me a lot of my father's, uh, I think, you know, we, we can chat offline, I'm sure, ad nauseum about our dads. My dad passed away as well from, uh, you know, a uh, very early age. And so I do miss him as well. And, uh, you know, you do learn things from, from your parents and your grandparents and, and your family. And I think we've lost a little bit of that in our world today. And I really do think that we need to bring back a lot of the values that we pass on to our kids and our grandkids. And um, really making sure they understand the essence of communication, of respect, of things that can really help us live the most abundant life that we can. And frankly, the 21st rule of my book is all about uh, positivity. You know, I wrote a book back in 2014 called Happy is Cool, How to Ignite the True Happiness in You. And uh, I'm big into positive psychology and positivity and We've lost that a little bit in our society. You know, we always are, like I said earlier, looking for the negative. We need to start looking for the positive. We really need to start being more positive about how we interact with people, more positive about ourselves and focusing on our own happiness so we can inject that happiness into our relationships. And science shows that not only if we are happy, or there's a whole host of science out there right now in terms of you're more productive, you're going to be healthier, you're going to live longer, et cetera. But also science shows that 
it makes for better relationships when you inject that positivity. And by the way, when you're more positive, you're going to bring the positivity out of others. And before you know it, you're striking rapport and you're gaining trust and acceptance and all this stuff. Before you know it, you're succeeding. You know, you're getting to where you need to be in life. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about you were close with your father and he died at a young age. My dad died at 54 short a couple a couple of years after the big the big collapse i mean when that collapse happened uh he he lost so much just energy and a lot of his net worth i mean it, it was it was terrible it was an awful thing and you know i think 90 percent of our country got affected um and we, you know i want to talk to you in a second but i think there's going to be a repeat even worse than 2008 but your father how old was he when he passed he was 63. That's still young, man. That's still so young. young. And I'm, young. Sure, I'm sure that was tough for you. It was an, it was unbearably tough. Absolutely. Like I'm sure your dad and anybody who loses a parent or anyone they love. Um, but it also reinforces the fragility of life. And it also reinforces that <clears throat> time, you know, is could be shorter than you think. And frankly, it gives you incentive to go out and live your life and to, to figure out what makes you happy and to really harness your talents and, and, and help other people achieve their goals. And this is what I love to do. You know, I do executive coaching and I, and I do a lot of speaking for organizations and companies and the book itself. I just want to, I know it sounds very altruistic, but at this stage of my life, I've learned a lot about how to do these things. And I really want to give back. I really want to help other people achieve their goals as well. I love it, man. I love it. And talk about your coaching business. Cause it, you know, it says here, the founder of intense coaching and consulting worldwide, an elite international life coaching and business development consulting firm. You're also the founder of intense artist management, a dynamic and strategic music management company. You're also the co-founder of devotion city which is the building the creative industry's largest accelerator. Listen, I, I think I, uh, when I came out of the womb, they, they, they stamped an entrepreneur a stamp on me. I, I really enjoy uh, building things, creating things. Uh, and I started out, frankly, uh, playing drums when I was five years old. So the creative juice really started at a very early age with me. Uh, with respect to the coaching business, I, I really do enjoy working with people one-on-one -on -one and certainly with small groups to do two things. One, certainly on the life coaching sex, I'm a certified life coach, really looking at aspects of people's lives and really helping them get to where they want to be, really prompting them to figure out how to overcome challenges, over, overcome obstacles in ways that they see fit. On the business side of things, on the business consulting side, it's really a, uh, it's a protocol uh, that we've laid out uh, for business development for the most part. So working with people who are client facing, people who want to build their business, grow their book of business, and really putting people through um, a, a regimen that I have come up with called Crux Rainmaking. It's a subject of another book that I'm working on, but it's the crux of the matter, quote unquote, when it comes to developing business. Really three things, resetting your mind to think like a rainmaker, Second, five prongs of what we call strategic lead generation. This is get you out there meeting your leads much more quickly and more efficiently, getting more and better leads. And then third, really tied to a lot of what's in this book is 
developing these unique re business relationships in this context. And those are relationships, again, that are difficult, if not impossible to replace. You know, good relationships are good, great relationships are great, but they're not unique. You have to build these unique relationships. So we walk everyone through this protocol over a period of about six months, and you change the way you think about relationships. And all great rainmakers that I'm aware of practice that, and it's not necessarily intuitive. So we really push everyone through this protocol to give them a different way of thinking about how they approach a potential client, how they develop a lead, how they close a deal and increase the success rate. I love it. I love it, man. And talk about your day-to-day -day operations at the intense artist management. So being a musician um, and uh, having an entertainment practice uh, as a part of my practice, representing professional entertainers and professional athletes, um, I have been asked over the years to, to, to do some management. Uh, it's not a, a big, big part of, of my overall business, but it's something that I have a true passion for. So these are, you know, music artists that I've represented over the years who are, uh, in some cases, in one case was a Grammy award winning artist, other cases are developing artists. And it's a way for me because I used to be a semi-professional musician. Um, and some might say I'm a semi-professional magician. But uh, my point is, I really do enjoy working with people who are passionate about the art, passionate about music and creating uh, good vibes. Because I, I listen to music all the time. I love going to concerts. Um, I, I love performing. Uh, I haven't performed live in a long time. Uh, but my point is, I really do enjoy helping certainly uh, people of all ages. But when you have someone who's a little younger, and who really wants to make it in the industry and you have that passion going, nothing really fulfills me more than that in terms of helping these people really get to the next level. I, I love it, I love it. And, and so tell me about this. I'm sure you've met a lot of people being in that realm, right? I have, yeah. Give, give me some big names that you were just kind of starstruck by, that you were just kind of mesmerized by, that you couldn't believe it, somebody that you, grew up watching or listening to and you're like, oh my God, I'm seeing you face to face now. This yeah. is like the most surreal experience, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, my favorite band is anybody who knows me knows. I'm sure everybody's saying in their in their heads now who might be watching this who knows me. Joe loves Rush. Rush is his favorite band. Love and Rush, man. Living in the limelight. There you go. Yeah. 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 I mean you're, you're... me, right me. I love, I love them, man. Can't Canadian band Rush, I love them. Awesome, awesome. Well, you and I are going to get along just fine, then I think. Um, yeah, they, I love these guys from you know from very early age, and uh, you know I, I have met uh, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson a few times actually, and uh, uh, never met uh, Neil. I, I did see Neil; he passed right by me. Uh, long story, but uh, uh, I never had a conversation with Neil, unfortunately. But. Uh, and being a drummer, obviously, he was my hero uh, growing up and, and still is my hero. But uh, another hero that, that I um, uh, really did get to know before his death was the great Buddy Rich. Uh, Buddy, uh, the world's greatest drummer, of course, uh, was famous for his jazz performance and his innovative style. Um, he was a major uh, influence for me. Interestingly enough, uh, my eighth grade jazz band stayed together until sophomore year of college. And I grew up in a town called Berwyn, um, the western suburbs of Chicago, and we called ourselves Berwyn Jazz. 
And so we were young kids doing old jazz standards, and we actually had the opportunity to open up for Buddy Rich two times. And I got to know Buddy, went on his bus, and we got to know each other. And the second time we opened up for him, quite interestingly, we, we got done playing before Buddy went and sat down behind his drums and did his set. Buddy went up to the microphone, and I'm like, I can't remember how old I was. I might have been in like uh, high school or first couple of years of college. And I said, uh, and, and he went up to the microphone. The first thing he said was to this crowd of thousands of people, he said, how about that Joey Bercato on drums? And that was like to this day, probably the biggest compliment I have ever gotten. And, uh, and, and I have been blessed to get to know his daughter, Kathy, and um, uh, her son, Nick, who's also an excellent drummer in his own right. Um, and so I've been blessed. Um, Final shout out to a very close dear friend and, and, and client of mine, uh, someone who I also managed uh, for quite some time, a gentleman by the name of Jim Peterick. Uh, Jim was the founding member of Survivor, uh, Eyes of March. They had a big, big hit vehicle. Da 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 da. Everybody recognizes that uh, most famous horn riff of rock and roll, but he also wrote, co wrote the song Eye of the Tiger. You may or may not have heard that. Your Rocky song, yeah. It is. Yeah. Rising up, back on the street, did my time, yeah. took my chance. That's, that's it. That's it. So Jim is a very close personal friend of mine. And Whenever I hear that song, I just get so pumped up. Like you just, you just get that. Not, right? you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, <laughs> exactly. you go from zero to a million, you know what I mean? With energy level. It's, it's awesome. Jim, Jim is, Jim is literally one of the best songwriters to walk the face of the planet. He wrote the book, Songwriting for Dummies. Um, he is uh, world renowned. I mean, he's written some of the most famous songs. He's written songs with Sammy Hagar, heavy metal. Um, he's written song, a lot of hits for 38 Special, and the list goes on and on and on. And uh, Jim is one of the nicest people you will ever meet in your life, and frankly, one of the most talented people I've ever met. And when you were when you were doing all this stuff, would you go on the road with these artists? Would you travel travel to all these amazing places and venues and get to experience all this up close? I've only thrown three couches out of a hotel window in my life, um, <laughs> um, and that was in Los Angeles, of course. You know, the Riot Hyatt House out there in Sunset. No, you know, I did um, I did travel a little bit with these guys, but yeah. as the personal manager, um, that's not necessarily the most prudent way to spend your time. Uh, there are tour managers that actually go on the road like that and handle all the operations. But um, I, I did do that periodically. I enjoyed that. Um, I give musicians um, and, frankly, athletes as well who are on the road as much as they are. Uh, it's a huge sacrifice. There's a big opportunity cost with family life and friends and other interests. And you're just away a lot. And uh, it's very, very difficult at times. It seems very glamorous. And it is. Um, but but it's probably tougher than most people think. So I, I do give uh, professional musicians and certainly athletes uh, a lot of credit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I got to let you go here in a second, but I could definitely talk to you all day. But I want to ask you about Devotion City. What about your day-to-day -day operations there? So this is a, a newer company, and uh, we're building out a platform to help music artists get to the next level. It's going to be a membership-based platform that really um, allows artists to keep track of their world as an artist. 
It provides mentorship from some great mentors in the industry, a lot of education, and a community online that really allows uh, artists to communicate with each other, to exchange ideas, um, and, and nothing like this really exists right now. So we're very proud of it. And, uh, you know, we had an initial family and friends raise. Uh, we're looking to do another uh, more significant raise very soon. And so it's in its uh, infancy, but uh, everybody loves it. Um, and we're really proud to have, I mentioned Jim Peterick. Jim, uh, we brought on as part of our uh, uh, executive leadership team. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're very, very pleased. They have some very uh, well-known and powerful people involved. So uh, stay tuned and uh, there's more to come on that. And Joe, um, if you ever need an app, I've been building apps for about 10 years. I, I do everything in technology, virtual reality, blockchain, artificial intelligence. Technology is like my main specialty. I've been doing it since 2012, 2013, when apps really started coming out. So it's amazing how it's evolved. And I always tell people technology is the closest thing to magic in existence. You click one button and you're there. You know what I mean? I, I absolutely know what you mean. I remember just when phones came out, you know, that was the technology of the day. And I think I was in, uh, God, I think I was a senior in college and I was like 88, 89. And I got one of those brick phones yeah. and I was like, uh, you know, I felt like king of the hill. I had it on my back <laughs> walking around. Now you can't even see the phone in people's pockets. You know, just the whole thing, the way it's progressed is, is truly fascinating. So good for you for being in that industry. Um, one of my sons actually is a computer science major and um, at uh, my, uh, Miami of Ohio. And wow. so he's deep into all this stuff. So I get some information from him from time to time about all the cool stuff that's, that's happening right now. That's awesome, man. And I'm seeing here that you've written for Forbes, Huffington Post, you're the CEO of World Magazine and StrategyDriven.com, Chicago Agent Magazine, and LeadershipExcellenceHR.com. You you own all of those? No, no, no. Those are those are publications that I have published. Articles. Oh, you you okay okay? Because it said cause I got a little mixed up because after it said Bricado has written for Forbes and Huffington Post, then it said CEO World Magazine. I thought you may have been the CEO, and then it gave a few of these different names. So you wrote for CEO World Magazine, strategydriven.com, Chicago Agent Magazine, and leadershipexcellencehr.com. Uh, you've also speak, you've speaking for a variety of organizations, including Citibank, City of Chicago, Live Nation, House of Blues, Feel Good Health Clubs, Fowler International Academy of Professional Coaching, and Fretson. Um, and, and you've been a guest on radio shows um, constantly. Wow, man, it's a lot. I've been blessed. I really have. Um, and, and I attribute it all to the excellent relations I've been able to build with people. You know, I do really enjoy people and I look for ways to help people grow their business, to be good to them. And it really is a, is a karma thing. It really comes back to you. And I think the opportunities that I've had that you've listed um, I think it's because, you know, I've tried to be as much as I could a good citizen, you know, someone who really cares about other people, who tries to help other people grow their business, help them achieve their goals. And uh, by participating in some of these great groups, whether speaking or writing, uh, especially my work with Forbes, writing business development articles primarily for Forbes, 
uh, has been a has been a really great experience for me, and and I love learning by it as well. Every time I do something, whether it's a speaking event or if it's writing an article or writing a book, I learn. And 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 there's the more I learn, the more I realize there's more for me to learn. So I really enjoy that loop of knowledge, and it's something that really ignites me to do the next great thing, hopefully, and uh, keep you know getting in front of great people. And I also saw here you went to one of the best schools in the country, Northwestern. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. I mean, definitely top five, top ten. I mean, it's it's all it's so hard to get into that school. You also went to Loyola University Chicago, um, where you studied economics, but your law degree was from Northwestern. I mean, that's and then you served, then you served as the editor of the Northwestern University Law Review. So you must have been topping your class. Well, like I said, I've been very lucky and very blessed. It was funny. I always joke when I got the acceptance letter to Northwestern Law School, I heard, I, I rushed to accept it before they realized they had made a mistake. So um, <laughs> luckily they didn't, they didn't catch it. So yeah, I've, I've been very uh, honored to be a graduate from Northwestern and to be on Law Review. Uh, made some great friends there, uh, many of which frankly are, are close friends to this day who've gone on to do great things. And uh, so... And, and, you know, I, I want everybody to learn, you know, and, and, and have opportunities. Um, like I said, my dad uh, came over to this country with practically nothing and became an alderman in my hometown, became a businessman. I've seen the way you, it operates. You know, you work hard and then hopefully you get to a higher level and you keep learning and growing. That's the model that I learned from. That's the model that I try to employ in my life every day. And I want to encourage other people to keep striving for that next level. Never give up. There's always a path to success. And I believe my book, Hit It Off, can be one tool they can use to get there. Very, very well said. Very well said. Right, right on, right on par. And I have to ask you, are you worried about the state of Illinois and Chicago and how things are going compared to what you always remembered growing up and how it's changed drastically and just the crime? Well, of course, I'm the high, isn't the highest taxes in the country, Illinois? You know, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm probably not as uh, familiar with the statistics on that. So I, mean, I, think it's one of them. I don't know. If it, I don't know if it's the main one, but I think it's one of them. I don't know. But but I, I'm I'm concerned not just about Chicago. I'm concerned about our country generally um, going back to the the incivility see out there right now you know it's happening here it's happening in a lot of other cities but the fact is that the vast 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 super majority of people in both chicago and i think around the country are good decent people yeah and these this is that middle ground this is the reasonableness that i really want to get back to in this city in this country and really start moving forward and building something we have all the tools in the city and in this country to build a great city and build a great country, much greater than it is. So it's really, really important that we keep our eye on the ball in Chicago, in every major city, in every small town and city in this country, and frankly, globally. And so if we're able to do that, I am confident we're all gonna be happier. We're all gonna live more abundantly. We're gonna feel safer. We're gonna be able to achieve our goals much more efficiently. And we're gonna be able to have a great life. And that's really what this is all about. Agreed. Agreed. And, and tell tell everybody real quick before you go, two biggest takeaways from your two books that you're promoting and then tell everybody where they can find you. That's a great question. I'll be back here soon, my friend, because you're the type of guy I could talk to all day. 
You've had one. You've had one hell of a life. I mean, it's story after story. Well, right back at you. Well, two things. One is um, always apply critical thinking and mindfulness to the interpersonal dynamic. Very, very important to help you achieve your goals. Second, really utilize the marriage of science and common sense, the intuitive to master these things. That's what's really gonna give you an edge. And that's the whole idea of the book. People can go to my website at hititoffthebook.com, hititoffthebook.com. I'd also encourage your viewers and, and listeners to follow me on social media, Joe Bricado Official. Joe Bricado Official. And would love for people to get in contact with me if uh, anyone is interested in uh, speaking events or coaching or whatever. Uh, would love to to have that discussion and uh, Roy, really appreciate this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real honor, my friend. Thank you so much. And we will talk soon. God bless you. Keep up the great work. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. We'll, Take care. We'll, we'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. Uh, this is the Rory Sauter and the news. It is a beautiful day coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. Can you please tell the jury why you're here today? Ms. Hurt accused me of abuse. My ex-husband is suing me. Brutal, cruel. This is humiliating for any human being to go through. And all false. Amber Heard forever changed Mr. Depp's life and reputation. Behind the fame, you're going to see who the real Johnny Depp is. Depp was the one who wanted the cameras in the courtroom. She didn't. I would argue it's a PR campaign disguised as a defamation case. There's the man himself. It's been a social media circus of commentary from creators and influencers. Did you commit any kind of prank? Absolutely not. On my side of the bed was human fecal matter. <laughs> this has moved away from a news story or a lawsuit. And it's transformed into a cultural moment. People are live tweeting. People are live streaming. Where does it end? The engagement is phenomenal. Videos can be very easily manipulated and republished. We're being influenced by bots interacting with bots. Johnny Depp is clearly winning right now in the court of public opinion. I've never been so scared in my life. She's acting. This trial is about so much more than Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Why are we all so fascinated with this case? Because they're famous, because of the details. What didn't the jury see? It just kicked me. It didn't happen. I don't know who to believe. I was hitting you. Mr. Mr. Depp is your victim, isn't he? This is not so much about the legal merit, but rather what the public perception is. And that leads us to the real question, which is, what is the actual truth? I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, MyStore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence 
And this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sodder. And the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. I do want to introduce my next guest. He's living a hell of a life. Amazing resume. I love all the patriotic things that he's doing. We have Tom Trento with us. Tom, first time on. It is an honor to have you here. You've had quite the journey. You've had so many different accomplishments. First and foremost, tell everybody about yourself. Give us a bio a background, how it all started for you? All right, well, good to be here, Rory. You do a great job. And uh, uh, we, I was following your uh, your previous guest, Sharp Guy, for sure. Thank you. Um, well, well, thank uh, you for being here, by the way, my friend. It's an honor to have you. Yeah, no no problem. We're all on the same. One team, one fight. That's our motto. Absolutely. So uh, one team, one fight. Absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, Italian family, and... Um, uh, a, a belief in God, and uh, I wanted to go into the FBI to uh, to enforce the law. And um, in college, in a crazy college uh, in New Jersey, 
Uh, I was a little bit of a lunatic. Uh, I got involved uh, against my will in, a, in this Bible study, became a born-again Christian, and um, that redirected my life from enforcing God's law to studying God's law. So I went on to Bible school and seminary and studied philosophy and all this stuff. And for 40 years, I've been fighting the battles as a, a Christian activist, primarily. Um, and uh, I had a strong background in uh, the Islamic theology uh, as a result of studying, obviously. And then in uh, 2001, when I watched the towers go down that I used to watch go up, I lived right across the Hudson River from the Trade Center. Uh, I knew I knew the world changed. And um, shortly after, we started an organization in Florida, which today is known as the United West, to help the state of Florida defend itself against Islamic Jihad and Marxist infiltration. That was the whole idea. And against that background, we uh, spent a lot of time in Israel. We took our team of uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 people, went to Israel and studied uh, anti-terrorism and, and terrorism issues um, in Israel with Israeli experts. Uh, it, when COVID hit 2020, um, Israel shut down. So we got our team together and we said, you know, we have a porous southern border. <clears throat> Let's go down there. We went down there. We embedded with um, Sheriff Daniels. He's a good guest for you to get sometime in, in Arizona, Cochise County. Yeah. We spent a week with I, him. I've had, I've had Sheriff Joe's a good longtime family friend of mine. He's been on my show several times. And uh, I used to work on many of his campaigns. And when I lived in Arizona for nine years, I would be at his office probably three times a week. And I still I still talk to him a couple times a week. You know, and when I'm ever I'm in town, you know, because I'm only four hours away, I, I always visit him. But I'll tell you. There's no other patriot as tough on the border and as, 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 a, as, a, as, you know, just he is one of a kind. There will never be another Sheriff Joe. I mean, what he's done <laughs> is beyond miraculous. They don't make guys like that anymore. And I always said he was Trump before Trump. He, uh, no, very, very good point. Um, pink underwear. You're going to eat a bologna sandwich, you know, and you're staying out in tents. I mean. Uh, amazing guy. Um, oh, yeah. And and you know what? People, you know, like I, I always saw things, you know, all these things on the news that were so untrue about him. And I just I always tell people, just go meet the guy and you'll love him. You'll love him. You'll have conversations with him for hours because he's the most authentic, genuine, warm hearted dude I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, and he cares more about this country than anybody I've ever seen. And, no, it's, and he's one of the very few that doesn't go and take, you know, money from all these donors. I mean, he does it the real, true way with amazing integrity. He, he, he is a, a wonderful guy on so many different levels. But you said I mean, you wanted people to go meet him. That's what we did with, uh, with our movie. And when we were down there, we said, if, um, if, if, all of America can come down here, see what the hell's going on, then you, people will start understanding the importance of the border. You're in Palm Springs. You're not that far from it. So um, uh, we decided to um, do our counterterrorism work 
on the border because the jihadis are coming across, obviously, the southern border. And in October of 2021, we got hooked up with Tom Homan, former ICE director. You're, you're familiar with him, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I, I interviewed him about a year and a half ago. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, we, we met him. We did a presentation with him. And I said, Tom, you just wrote a book. Your story needs to be told. But he's such a humble guy. He yeah. rose from a beat cop to the top of ICE which is amazing. Six presidents he served. Obama gave him an award. Trump gave him an award. Trump and Holman sealed the border and saved lives in 17 and 18. Right. So he said, all right, you know, I don't think my life is anything. I said, your life is amazing. So we got our team together. We, uh, we brought good friend of ours, Chris Burgard, an amazing uh, uh, movie director in. And we put the first episode, Death County and the River of Broken Dreams, together. And we're releasing it now. Two week, three weeks ago, we had a, um, a premiere at the U.S. Congress. Uh, Congressman Troy Nels sponsored it. Very successful. Now we're showing it um, on our website for free, Death County and the River of Broken Dreams, on uh, defendtheborder.org. That's the short story that we'll get into. I'll give you all the crazy stuff, too. Wow, man. So you were talking about Sheriff Brown. Go, and I cut you off uh, with the uh, with talking about our pile, but you were saying you were doing, you went down there and met with Sheriff Brown in Arizona? No, we met with uh, Daniels, Sheriff Mark Daniels in Cochise County. Okay. And they let us embed with their uh, their department and, and go places, work with them. And they have an amazing, they have 83 miles on the border. And they have a, an amazing um, uh, camera system where, and it's public now, where they put these cameras all over the rat trails. But it's not a camera standing there where, like, you can wave to it. It's a tree trunk, you know, but there's a camera inside the tree trunk. It's a, an owl in the tree, but it's not an owl. It's a camera. Right. And when they're triggered, you know, they're the hunting cameras. Yeah. When they're triggered, the deputies look on their iPhone and they go, got six of them coming across. They're carrying a dope with them. Look at that. Okay. We'll intersect them an hour and a half from now at sector four. What an amazing operation they have. And Daniels will tell you, Hey, we're doing what the federal government should be doing. So we decided to have a campaign, a two-year campaign that used multimedia movies, TV, social media, what we're doing now to mobilize tens of thousands of people to get engaged in the election process for 24 and to bring in pro-border security patriot politicians in 24. Otherwise, Rory, this country is done. Five million people in illegally since Biden. Became seven. Biden. It's seven. I heard a report that it was seven. It'll be seven and 24 when he's finished. It's it, the closer figures, five, five, seven. <laughs> but isn't, isn't five what we know of, though? I mean, that's just what they've counted. But who really knows, right? Um, five is what we know. And there's that term. You've heard that term, got a ways. Pretty cool term. Um, the people that got away, that didn't get caught. What the heck number is that? Who knows? Easily another million or two. Yeah, and here in California, uh, if they come across the border, 
um, they can get unemployment for 300 a week, even if they've never, if, even if they've never had a job here, plus health benefits, plus food benefits, they're getting tra- treated better than American citizens in many aspects. I live in Florida now. I'm coming to you from Florida. Did you used I, to live in California? No, I, I worked there. In fact, I ran a couple of congressional races there years ago. For who? Uh, for which candidates? For it was District Three up north. Um, Tim Lefevre was running. He ran against Vic Fazio, 1994, uh, in uh, Newt Gingrich's contract with America. Remember that? Oh, okay. Um, and uh, Vic Fazio was the Democrat incumbent, 17 years. We almost knocked him off. But that's when California, I think Pete Wilson was uh, the governor. That's when California really had a conservative element to it. What's happened to you guys? It's really sad, man. It really is a tragedy because, I mean, there are there's more conservatives in this, in this state than people think. Um, but we all know this is one of the most rigged election states, if not the most rigged election state. Um, and it's become so just a connected circle. I mean, these, these politicians have their own clique and Newsom, you know, has passed all these laws and all these higher ups have passed these laws, you know, that are so bad that I don't know if a Republican could ever get back into office as governor. And even, you know, we, you know, we had Arnold, but was he a real Republican? No, he was kind Kind of. I mean, kind yeah. of, yeah. but not not what California needed. I mean, not a Reagan. Not a Reagan. Not a Reagan. No. And this is what I'm saying. And I've said this many times. We need to have somebody step up to the plate that is somewhat notable, has some recognizable background. And if it has to be a celebrity that's extremely articulate, then so be it. Because we're in a state or that is kind that that kind of scenario I could see happening because you know I, I feel like the days of the large followings and the you know the, the the people are just sick of politicians they want outsiders and we're seeing the rock talk about running we're seeing Matthew McConaughey talk about running for president uh, we've talked we've heard Kanye West talk about running for president uh, you know I've heard there there's rumors about this but I don't know if it's true and I would, I would love if, if this actually did happen. Tom Cruise eventually has talked about that he wants to be in political office, which, I mean, he has the biggest fan base in Hollywood. If he was to run for president, I have told many people, and I, and I think this is fair to say, he would get more bipartisan votes, I think, than any candidate in history. I could see Tom Cruise being president if he really, really wanted to. And if that talk is actually true, with political endeavors, because um, I think he's too good to just run for governor of California. Although I do, like I said, think we need somebody notable, but just on a lower, a little lower scale than Tom Cruise to run for governor. But it's interesting. It's interesting where we're at in society. You have all these outsiders that uh, really want to replace these politicians. Yeah, and part part of that um, is, and I'll, I'll bring it back to the border. Part of that is there's been a cultural shift over the past 20, 30 years. And I think uh, Trump opened that door, by the way, being on he, the being on the reality shows and being a successful businessman 
and not having any prior experience to politics, I really think that opened a door for so many people because on both sides of the aisle, we saw more people running than ever, you know? He, he definitely uh, opened the door for um, the outsider. Oh, no, and that's what I mean. On both sides of the yeah. aisle, we've been seeing more outsiders than ever before running. The, but the cultural shift I'm talking about is a, uh, a philosophical, theological component where historically the majority of Americans had a belief in God that something was out there, something was real, and we're accountable, and our laws should reflect that. Over the past 30, 40 years, we've drifted away. Fewer people go to church. Fewer people believe in God. Fewer people believe in the Ten Commandments. So we have de facto two countries, a, and it's the Republican that still maintains a, a God-centered, God-family country, and the neo-Marxist Democrats have replaced the state with God. Well, as a result of that, the border becomes, here's a very important point for your, your viewers. Uh, Karl Marx, part of the, the essence of communism, Marxism, was no ownership of private property. Well, Marx argued very effectively that you shouldn't own private property and a country, therefore, can't own private property. You can't have borders if you want to understand what a true morality is. So he argued for no borders, an open society. And the Democrats now in power, they don't even understand what I'm talking about, but they're articulating a neo-Marxist view of a country can't own its borders. And mm -hmm. you've heard this so much in the, from the globalists. And the, the Biden administration has bought this hook, line, and sinker, and they're propagating just, I'll hit you with one issue. They're propagating the Biden administration, the largest child trafficking disaster in the history of the world right now taking place in the United States. The drug cartels used to make about a billion dollars a year selling coke. And, uh, you know, you sell a, key, a kilo and it gets snorted up, it's gone. They're making right now, right now, a billion dollars a month taking little girls and little boys and selling them one, two, three, four, five times a day, recurring revenue propagated by this administration. It's a disaster. It's sad. It's horrible. Right. No, I agree with you. And, and, and I want to I want to ask you a bunch of things I'm reading about your background. Trent, you know, you're a highly skilled debater and dynamic public speaker with earned degrees in law enforcement, um, theology uh, and philosophy. And uh, you are also one of the co-authors of Sharia, the threat to America. You've appeared on several media outlets and, and talk shows as a subject matter expert and was awarded the, the, Carne uh, the Carnegie Hero Medal Award for saving a man from a burning car. Holy shit, man. That's a, incredible. I was a little younger. <laughs> was a little younger. Talk, talk about that for a second because the audience probably wants to hear that. That's one of the most heroic things anybody could ever do. Uh, uh, it was... Um, It was September 11th, actually. I think it was 1983. Uh, wow, out of all days, September 11th. I know. Out of I know, all I know. days. I only realized that a couple of years ago because I stay in touch with the Carnegie Foundation 
yeah. I mentor, I mentor, and I I give awards to the new uh, uh, the new individuals who who get the Carnegie Award. Right. So, and I looked at the I forgot when it was. I looked at the date. It was September 11th. I went ah. Uh, I was driving home, um, and uh, it's interesting. I was going to go this way or that way. At the last minute, I said, "Let me go this way," and um, it was rainy in Colorado. Uh, I was in school at Colorado in Denver Seminary, and um, and I, I had an automobile racing background, so I'm I'm driving carefully in the rain, and um, this car, three lane highway, this car passes me, and and I said, "That's not going to work in this weather," and the next thing I see, the car slides out of control, jumps the median goes on the other side and I just saw a big explosion, uh, um, a f- you know, big flame. So, you know, this is stuff that uh, they write books about this stuff that uh, I didn't think, I think I'll be a hero. I think I, you just react. You just react. I pulled over. <clears throat> I ran across the street and um, there were, you know, I could see the picture now. There were 20, 30 people, the cars had stopped. And they were all in a semicircle looking at the burning car. And, and I run over to it, and there's a guy slumped over, and the back of the car is starting to burn to get inside. And I, I'm screaming at the people, you know, give me something. And I'm punching the window, and it's wet, and couldn't get in. And it, it was, it all happened in 30 seconds. Um, and I didn't, you know, you don't plan this stuff. I just, I remember screaming at the people, they were frozen. But I ran back to the group about 20, 30 feet away and just ran as fast as I could and jumped up with my two feet and went through the side window, driver's window of the AMC Pacer, very big window. Went into the car, fell down, the car flames all over, and I got cut up and went in and got burnt up a little bit and and pulled them out. And uh, that was it. And, you know, um, uh, so... Uh, if I guess if I didn't do it, the guy would have, well, I would have burned to death because nobody was doing anything. So that, you know, and they do an investigation and you get an award and when you die, they put a thing on your grave. <laughs> wow, man. So, I mean, in that moment though, I mean, obviously you were terrified, but you knew you had to do something. You know, I just saw this kid unconscious on the steering wheel and I'm right here, six inches away and I'm pounding the window right. and, and I'm going, I, I have to do something. I have to do something. And I didn't know if kicking the thing would work, um, but it but it worked. So anyway, that's, so that's that little story. Wow, man. And, and, and talk about the public speaking. You do a lot of public speaking. I grew up in a Sicilian family having to argue all the time. You argue for food. You argue for this. <clears throat> You're always fighting, arguing. And... Um, uh, and God gave me an ability to see things analytically. Yeah. Um, so I went to school and studied stuff to perfect that. And, and then I purposely went into uh, an area where I did a lot of debating, still do, uh, but in a very formal setting at universities and TV and all that. And I've debated everybody on all the, all the mostly cultural, you know, uh, either conservative politics or conservative theology issues with all the nutcases and the experts. And if you know what you're doing and you know how to do it, you can't lose. And by that, I mean, I, I learned very quickly 
because I was sort of a hot shot um, and I would win the debate, but I'd lose the audience. And then I said, this is no good. I'm not here to beat this guy up. I'm here to help those people see the truth. And I modified my approach to not win. You know, if you're if you're if you're a boxer and you're watching the guy get beat up, you start going for the the underdog. So I backed off the opponents a little bit and tried to have the audience learn what I was trying to teach as opposed to win a debate. And I, you know, I know how to do that stuff. Uh, that's a skill. That's a, that's a skill in itself. And, and it seems like that one of those things comes naturally, you know, either you're born with being a debater or you're not. Cause we see politicians out there who can be good politicians, but they're the shittiest debaters on earth. They're horrible. They're, they're awful. Horrible. They make you want to go to sleep. Yep. Yep. Uh, no, it's something you're born with, but, but once again, I mean, you could be born with an athletic body, but you got to be in the gym. You got to be running. You got to be doing sit-ups. You got to be doing this stuff. So I studied, studied, studied. I threw myself into very difficult situations and you get to a point never where you're, you're complacent. You know, I'm always very well prepared, but where you're, um, you're comfortable and you're confident because you've heard everything. I've heard every question you know, and let's take the border, for instance, you conservatives, I'm a Trump supporting conservative Republican, you Republicans, you're racist. And my skin is browner than most people. You know, I have Arab blood in me. I have Jewish blood in me, but I'm dominant Italian. Right. So what am I? You know, um, I'm not a racist. You know, I'm concerned about people. But all those arguments that pop up, they can be answered. But the problem, Rory, you know, because you're dealing with the media. The other side has lost their ability and their desire to think logically. So whatever you say, they call you names and they tell you to get out of here. And it's very difficult to persuade them of anything because they function emotionally as opposed to analytically. And I got to ask, Tom, when you looked at the wall, when you went down to the wall, um, I know they stopped construction on it, but how much of the wall did actually got done? Because, I mean, I see stories, I see, but I, I don't believe what I read anymore. I don't believe, I, I got to hear it from somebody that's actually been there. Yeah, there's, there's approximately 2,000 miles from California to, to Texas. And something like 1,500 requires fencing, borders, various systems. Uh, the other four or 500 has uh, natural geographic um, uh, uh, prohibitions for people coming across. You got to climb a mountain and you could have drones flying. So of the 1,500 miles, about, I think the last figure was about half of that, seven, 800 miles. Trump did four or 500 miles. Um, and a lot of the stuff that's up there is ragtag. You can push it over with your finger, but the stuff Trump put up it goes up um, almost 30 feet and, uh, and then has the metal and then barbed wire on the top of it. And, and every piece of it, as we learn in Israel, is designed to prohibit people coming over it. And, um, uh, but the money, and this isn't a Ukraine subject, but the money we're blowing and throwing to Ukraine could have put the, the border wall up 10 times right. and this right. country would be safer, safer than what we're doing. Just spending money over there right now. Yeah. And I, you know, 
the whole project of we we build the border wall. Do you remember those guys? The guy that went to jail. What's his name? Steve uh, Bannon. I know. Yeah, Steve Bannon was involved, but the guy that went to jail, uh, I forget his name. The amputee veteran. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he he's he's going to jail for three to four years, and I knew from day one that whole thing was a scam. I mean, didn't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even they they contacted Arpaio, and Arpaio said he would not get involved, and they contacted numerous uh, high, you know, notable name people, and a lot of people said no, we're not getting involved. But Bannon got involved, and then Bannon Bannon got pardoned for it. But but what it says is um, it says that there's such a such a pent up demand by Americans to do something that a guy could come along and say I'll build a wall send me some money I'll go down there I'll build it on federal property or private property and yeah and and then and then they fail to they they, they fail to mention all these government regulations that they have to go through all the loopholes that can take years. It's oh, not right. as easy as that. And I said that from day one. These people are out of their minds. They're just trying to brainwash and manipulate the Trump crowd. Well, he, here's what we need. I gotta, I, I'd love to spend an hour with you. We got to do it sometime. Yeah. And we can talk about a lot of different things. Oh, but absolutely. What we have, what we, our issue right now, our, the main thing, we want everybody to go see the movie Death County and the River of Broken Dreams on our website, defendtheborder.org. And essentially, Rory, we have a man, Tom Homan. We have a, a, the first episode of 10. It's done, an investigative report exposing Biden's planned disastrous policies. And um, we, uh, we're creating a movement mobilizing people. We, we exist on donations. We're a 501c3. We're looking for small donations. And we're also looking for people that want to help fund the next one. We'll take them with us. Um, that's a call I got to take. We'll take them with us uh, on the border and uh, to film for two, three, four weeks. So defendtheborder.org. Um, I apologize. I got to get going. But uh, you're a great guy to sit down and talk to. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the biggest, the biggest takeaway you want from this film, what do you want people to get from this? What do you, what do you like, explain that real quick before you go? They see that tactically the border is an issue that can help get people elected in November 2024 to return America to constitutional sanity. I hear you. I hear you. And tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved. Defendtheborder.org. Defendtheborder.org. Go there. And, and last thing before you go to conclude, who else besides Tom Homan are you getting on board? Are you getting a lot of other notable individuals? Oh, yeah. Victor Avila, like I said, Chris Burgard, our, our director, Sarah Carter. It goes on and on and on. we got a whole group of people. Wow, man. Tom, we're going to have to talk a lot more soon, my friend. Uh, God bless you. Keep up the great work. I really love this conversation. And uh, like I said, we'll talk soon. Cheers, my friend. Thanks, Rory. Take care. All Bye -bye. right, everybody. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Men to cheat. You pick John Kramer. The cancer is still spreading. I'm afraid there's nothing else we can do. There is one person who might be able to help. Our program is a two-pronged treatment outside Mexico City. The results have been stunning. She saved my life. You're in very good hands with us. I think I 
after that, what happens then? Your whole life happens then, John Kramer. According to these scans, the tumor was never removed. How much time do I have? Months, at best. I still have a lot of work that needs to be done. Tended to cure me. But what I have planned for each of you is very real. Peace came upon me. No light. No sound. The only thing I have not provided is your anesthetic. But trust me, you will want to remain alert. You pick John Kramer? Please, don't hesitate. Place a big enough piece of your cerebral tissue into the glass enzyme tank. This will save your life. So this is not retribution. It's a reawakening. The choice is yours. Our lives are the sum of our choices. escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours, too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. Ethan, what's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? 
Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Please tell the jury why you're here today. Ms. Hurt accused me of abuse. My ex-husband is suing me. Brutal, cruel. This is humiliating for any human being to go through. And all false. Amber Heard forever changed Mr. Depp's life and reputation. Behind the fame, you're going to see who the real Johnny Depp is. Depp was the one who wanted the cameras in the courtroom. She didn't. I would argue it's a PR campaign disguised as a defamation case. There's the man himself. It's been a social media circus of commentary from creators and influencers. Did you commit any kind of prank? Absolutely not. On my side of the bed was human fecal matter. <laughs> this has moved away from a news story or a lawsuit. And it's transformed into a cultural moment. People are live tweeting. People are live streaming. Where does it end? The engagement is phenomenal. Videos can be very easily manipulated and republished. We're being influenced by bots interacting with bots. Johnny Depp is clearly winning right now in the court of public opinion. I've never been so scared in my life. She's acting. This trial is about so much more than Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Why are we all so fascinated with this case? Because they're famous, because of the details. What didn't the jury see? It just kicked me. It didn't happen. I don't know who to believe. I was hitting you. Mr. Mr. Depp is your victim, isn't he? This is not so much about the legal merit, but rather what the public perception is. And that leads us to the real question, which is, what is the actual truth? Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com.
Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. Still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. <gasps> wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented bill and combine it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, my pillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that my pillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. My pillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of my pillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed, and I wake up well-rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is going to give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side. Well, all that's gone with my brand-new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand-new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. And we are back. Coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sodder and the News. I am Rory Sodder, your host. My next guest, uh, we have a few people to get to today. Uh, still about couple hours left in the show, but we have Joe Allen with us right now. Joe, you have had a hell of a career. You're doing a lot of big stuff right now. You have a big book out, but first and foremost, tell the audience about yourself. Give us a bio, a background, a resume, how it all started for you. Well, Rory, I'm a man with many hats, but, uh, at, you know, at back of all trades, trade. baby. <laughs> That's me. Uh, not a, a master of none though. Uh, you know, I, um, at present, I serve as the transhumanism editor for The War Room with Steve Bannon. Uh, I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a great many years. I've been getting paid to write for 15 off and on. I've, wrote, I've written about technology really from the beginning. The first published articles I had uh, were either about technology or the concert industry. Uh, I spent 15 years as a, a rigger for arena, for arena Productions. Uh, that was a pretty interesting look at technology and the effect that technology has, especially on uh, mass group behavior. Uh, and I also I studied uh, cognitive science and evolutionary science as they relate to religion at Boston University uh, with, the with the humble beginnings at the University of Tennessee. So um, and I, of course, I, I've got a new book forthcoming will be out August 29th is available now for pre-sale should anybody be interested. The title is Dark Eon, Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. And it's the culmination of two and a half years of constant coverage 
of the transhumanist movement, of technology in general, of techno culture. And, um, and I would say in, in many ways, it's maybe 25 years uh, of religious studies research, all boiled down into um, a sleek 400 pages. Unreal, man. What a life, man. Let's start with Steve Bannon's war room. What's that like? That must be quite the experience, man. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, you know, it, it started out just, uh, I, I went on his show, he had read one of my articles and uh, it began as my, must have been fourth or fifth Skype call in my life. Uh, it, it went on with a, a, you know, he brought me on the show. I, I did it remote, um, especially at first, but began visiting uh, Washington DC and various other places where their studios began going to events uh and working directly with the team and um yeah it, it's been pretty fantastic it's been it, 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 there's two elements to it number one uh i've met some of the most interesting people that i could hope to meet uh, number two i you know when i'm not uh, in person I, I function basically like a cyborg uh, you can see my chips here yeah. and you know it's only a matter of time maybe here so um it, it, pretty interesting but yes uh i, I think that the, the mission to cover transhumanism couldn't have come at a more opportune time, I suppose. I can't say that I love the subject matter as much as I would others, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, it is uh, now and is definitely going to be incredibly relevant uh, going forward. And how long have you been working for him for? Uh, I started with Bannon in uh, March of 2021, so about two and a half years. And what are like your day-to-day -day operations over there? It's kind of explain to the audience. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it depends. In studio is a very different story from remote. Remote is a, a lot of uh, telecommunication. Uh, not much different, I suppose, than any other. Uh, but, you know, in, in studio is always fantastic because there's oftentimes other guests around, obviously talking to Steve before and after. And, um, and his crew, too, is really incredible. I've gotten to know them very well. So... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a different world for me, uh, the world of uh, video, the world of radio. Uh, but I, I think it it certainly gave me the opportunity to write down a lot of the things that uh, I, I felt needed to be written down for a long time. Now, do you do writing for the show? Uh, some of my stuff appears at the War Room. A lot of my stuff appears elsewhere, though. I mean, you know, some of the most recent articles that might be of interest to your readers, uh, Chronicles Magazine, A Deal with the Digital Devil is the title of the, the latest there. Uh, a large feature it was actually the cover story for the magazine. Uh, I've written a lot for The Federalist. I've written a lot for Salvo Magazine, both the print and online. Uh, I've written uh, a, a fair bit for The American Conservative. And I've had, uh, you know, individual pieces placed all over the, you know, all over. I've uh, been a freelance writer, like I say, for uh, 15 years, almost exactly 15 years now. So uh, my stuff has appeared a lot of different places. But uh, so it's kind of a yes or, or yes and no to that one. Dude, that's incredible. And, and when, you're, when you're over there in the war room, and then I, I want to shift topics after we talk about the war room, but you've probably met everybody, right? You've probably encountered so many different faces and so many big names and have probably built some amazing relationships with and connections and all that fun stuff. I've met a lot of excellent people. Yes, absolutely. He always has big, big he always has big names on there, man. Yeah. 
And who who's the who's the person that you like that you know you're most impressed with? Who would you say is the most? I, I can't I can't pick favorites on that one. Okay. But, um, some of the more interesting, you know, honestly, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one for another day. How about that? Do you hang out with Jack Posebic a lot? Because I know he's over there quite a bit. I, I have a number of times. Yeah, I really like him. He's he's doing a lot of good things for the movement. And, absolutely, uh, absolutely, solid character. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what, what's what's he like? Great, great guy, right? Absolutely. He's always he has done uh, as much as anybody to help me out along the way. So. Uh, he's he's been fantastic for me. I love it, man. And you know, going back to, I'm reading here. Obviously, you talked about all these different various outlets you've written for. You also, like you said earlier, you hold a master's degree from Boston University, where you studied cognitive science and human evolution as they pertain to religion. Kind of kind of explain that to the audience, because I think. You know, I, that's very advanced. It's very, that's very kind of, you know, uh, complicated in a way, I think, for uh, certain people to understand. So kind of put that into context if you can. You know, uh, we'll look at three different things, two of them really quickly. The first, uh, religious point of views. Uh, you think about a religious point of view in which uh, certain things are held sacred, others are profane you think about a religious point of view that is pointed towards a higher power. Uh, Christians have a very clear conception of what that higher power is. Jesus, uh, God, the Holy Spirit, and, and, you know, Catholics and Orthodox, many other uh, beings. Look across the span of all world religions and you find certain generalizations that are the same. Obviously, the particulars are very, very different. So you think about that world. You think about the religious world, all, all religions or any given and then think about it on the other side, the scientific worldview, uh, the view that uh, evolution is basically the root and uh, the various mechanisms of evolution, whether it's cosmic or biological or cultural. Uh, all of those mechanisms of evolution are basically the origin story of humanity in that scientific box. And a lot of people, when they think about religion and science, they think about that, right? They think about creationism versus evolution. Uh, they think about uh, uh, bio, or biodeterminism or psychodeterminism, especially as it regards uh, human choice versus free will and the spirit, uh, th these conceptions. That is what people tend to think of with religion and science, and that's absolutely correct. And, and those are, I think, there are places where they meet in between, but by and large, those are two separate spheres. And we can get back to the scientific point of view because that really is the, the bedrock of transhumanism. Right. But... Cognitive science of religion is taking the methodology of science and you're looking at religious systems. So uh, it's in cognitive science, especially you're looking at certain sorts of stereotypical cognitive modules, things that people tend towards. You can think of uh, bias uh, as being a major element in that. Uh, you can think of in-group bias. People tend to uh, behave well towards those in their in-group and, uh, you know, it changes a, a bit or to extremes with people in the out group, people not part of your group. Uh, you can think of the human mind's propensity to detect danger, that uh, the human mind is always attuned, and it varies from individual to individual, but it's always attuned to certain dangers in the environment, and some dangers trigger stronger responses than others. It's really uh, very consistent from person to person. So how does that relate to religion? Uh, you know, I, I find it to be, I, I, I've studied it for a long time, 
I've absorbed that philosophy, but I find it to be a very deadening philosophy, ultimately. Uh, basically, you are stripping down the human mind and you are looking at the ways in which religious systems reflect it. And uh, it, it ultimately, as I, as I described before, it's like an autistic person looking at a jaguar pacing in a cage and all he can see are genetic algorithms and muscular contractions. You, right. you don't see the spirit inside of it. But that is what uh, the, the study of uh, the cognitive science of religion or the evolutionary study of religion is taking the lens of science and you're looking at religion. So that features a lot in my book, um, not necessarily because I'm arguing from that perspective, but to understand both uh, the scientific point of view uh, from within it and also from, from without, I think that those, it actually does provide a lot of tools. To put it really simply, uh, you could say that in the cognitive science of religion, that there is hypothesized, at least by many of the scientists, a God-sized hole in the human mind or the human heart, you would say in a more metaphorical sense. And that God-sized hole, when traditional religion is removed, that God-sized hole will fill up with something else. In the case of transhumanism, that God-sized hole has filled up with microchips. It's filled up with technology. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people try to make the argument that God and science can't go together. You know, people try to say, well, you believe in all this various science and you can't really be religious. But I think they both go together perfectly. I think it, I think they definitely are a part of each other. How do you feel? I certainly stand at the intersection of those two. I, I, I live as best I can with one foot in each world. I, I, I myself, I think that so far I've not found them to be 100% coherent unless I ignore certain things in either world. But I, I couldn't imagine seeing the world without both eyes and in the same way I couldn't imagine seeing the world without uh, the, the deep traditional spiritual point of view on the one hand. And now that we live in the culture that we live in with the education that we've had, it's very difficult. You can't unsee uh, the, the realities that science has brought into view. Not that there's any the one science and honestly, not that there's any the one Christianity. So far as I can tell, there are many grades and, sh and shades, but um, I am definitely square in the middle on that, at least insofar as how I communicate ideas to the world. I, you know, in, on your best days, you're living in the spiritual world and science is basically just window uh, decorations, window dressing, they say. Yeah, sorry, I got, I got disappeared for a second on the screen, but I have to ask you, you know, you bring, people bring up the question, well, if you believe, like, you know, we were just talking about the whole science and how it factors into God and religion. But people's argument, they like to say, well, if you believe in aliens and you can't believe in God. Well, I, right. I, I believe in both. And I, I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I'm not going to say there's definite proof of aliens, but I think there's signs, significant signs that are, that actually, you know, uh, lean towards it. they probably exist. Myself, you know, I've spent a, a fair amount of time looking into extraterrestrials. Uh, some of it uh, unwillingly. I was simply assigned to look at it and write about it. Uh, what I think, as far as the actual visitations and people getting scooped up and butt probed, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, do you believe other people's stories, what they tell you? Um, sometimes, sometimes not. So, I mean, but people are definitely saying that they experienced this. 
uh, you can dismiss it out of hand or not. And then the sightings of the ships, also quite compelling, but also uh, unsatisfying to me. Uh, to me, uh, it, and it's not, this is nothing that I would want to argue in a venue, but uh, to, I think that just looking out at the vastness of the universe, uh, yes, the Fermi par paradox, uh, yeah, yes, uh, it's possible we're the only ones, but that would be, if, if God created the universe, that's a, an awful lot of extra unused real estate. And even if you stay with a purely scientific point of view, you definitely have to stick with a very narrow set of numbers to believe that out of the many, many billions of stars in the galaxy and the many trillions of galaxies and therefore the, the really countless worlds that exist out there, I, I, it would take a, a real impoverished imagination to imagine we were the only ones. Absolutely. And have you, I have to ask you this, obviously, I know you've been paying attention to it, but how, how involved are you with artificial intelligence right now? I mean, that's been the central focus uh, at the moment, especially just because it's such a, a lively conversation. Uh, you know, transhumanism, just the ideas behind transhumanism to optimize and augment the human mind and the human body and uh, in, in, its most, in its most dramatic forms to create digital life, digital intelligence and the goal of creating superhuman intelligence. Obviously it features uh, prominently in transhumanism and everything that goes below that from brain computer interfacing to robotics, even genetic engineering, all of those elements are directly affected by artificial intelligence or are centered on artificial intelligence. So yeah, and, and right now the big arguments that are raging uh, are around the creation of artificial general intelligence, whether or not uh, humanity would even survive that. Uh, sometimes it, 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 I think, tends towards the overdramatic, but I, I think that to, to dismiss the recent advances in artificial intelligence and the possibilities of where it could go, to dismiss that or ignore it, I, I think it, people do that at the, either at their own peril existentially, but at the very least, uh, you are not going to be following the stream of uh, very soon to be history if if you're ignoring artificial intelligence so but yes of course uh gpt is very very interesting for a lot of reasons but other systems are, are more interesting and, and perhaps more dangerous the systems used to analyze biological structures especially used in uh, genetic engineering so it could easily be used for gain of function or the creation of uh you know bioweapons uh, chemical weapons things like that. And, and, and the surveillance systems, a lot of the most advanced surveillance systems rely on artificial intelligence to make sense of all the data coming in from the surveillance sensors, whether they be cameras, whether they be these screens, uh, whatever it may be. And so artificial intelligence features uh, really prominently, prominently too, just in the uh, secure, various security states around the world and the surveillance capabilities of these agencies. What do you look at from an economic standpoint, there's a lot of reports within five to 10 years that robots could take over as much as, as, of, as, of, as much as 100 million jobs. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's, I remember that came from a large banking firm. I wanna say uh, JP Morgan, but if, if it wasn't them, it was another large banking firm. I remember that report. Uh, it was interesting about that, especially is the, uh, how, how much the projections tilt towards white collar jobs rather than blue collar jobs. Uh, right now, robotics is not, it is certainly not stalling out, but it is not progressing as quickly 
as people might have projected in the past. And, and certainly armies of robots appearing to do all the manual labor that's needed to be done, that seems very, very unlikely in the next five years. On the other hand, with advances of GPT and other algorithms, uh, you, you see the real p potential for various white collar jobs to go. And uh, at the extremes, the people who are really, really about using artificial intelligence in place of human intelligence, they're talking about the replacement, the full replacement, or at the very least, the uh, irreversible augmentation of the medical system, but uh, full replacement of doctors, full replacements of nurses, if they can get away with it, uh, with robotics, uh, replacement of lawyers, replacement of teachers, which I think teachers is one of the biggest tragedies we would ever see if a huge swath of teachers was replaced by a one-on-one -on -one ai tutors that would be i think ultimately a nightmare to have uh, you know a huge proportion of the of, a, of an entire generation raised by robots or educated by robots but ai so to speak not a necessarily humanoid so it, basically you look at this this is all the greater replacement right like people talk about the great replacement in terms of the mass immigration and i think that's a real problem and i think that it has to be addressed absolutely uh but you know uh, riding above that and oftentimes parallel to it you have this greater replacement you have this notion that human beings should be replaced by as much automation as possible because it will make the people who are getting replaced and make their lives better and of course it will make the lives of those producing these systems and those who want to control the economy with an iron fist it makes their lives a lot better I think the latter is more important, by the way. As far as five years from now, 100, uh, 100 million jobs across the world being replaced, maybe, maybe not. It could be actually more. It could be, quite likely be less. The most important thing about it to me is uh, right now we're at a, a hinge point in the civilization that, uh, you know, any civilization, the direction it moves or any society or any community, the direction it moves is going to be oriented to the future in some sense whether they're looking to a resurrection, whether they're looking to a second coming, whether they're looking to reincarnation, whether whatever it may be, a Kali Yuga, whatever it may be, that's going to be the, the guiding principle of the civilization. Right now, the guiding principle is technological. And a big part of that technological vision is the replacement of human beings. And whether those robots ever appear or whether the AI is effective enough, what we are what we see is a ruling class that is determined to replace us and i think that uh, whatever success they meet with uh, it, a series of disasters not unlike what we saw during the pandemic uh would just it'll just be inevitable it will just be wave after wave of them and, and a lot of it is i think the result of an elite indifference to the rest of the the population did you see those recent videos of those robots I think it was MIT or one of these big uh, high-end, uh, you know, tech colleges that do all this amazing stuff. But he, the robot was doing backflips. Yes, uh, Boston Dynamics. That's Alex. Boston Dynamics. Okay, I knew. Okay, okay. So it wasn't MIT, but it was Boston Dynamics. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's they're they're at MIT. They're um, it's it's all interwoven. Boston Dynamics is now owned by Hyundai, uh, but uh, you know they, they've sworn. Uh, at present, uh, they, they have assured the public that these robots will not be used for military purposes or police purposes. Uh, whether they hold uh, true to that, whether they are, um, are honorable to their word, they, it doesn't ultimately matter if someone else replicates it or approaches it. But uh, yeah, it is astounding, especially when you look at what uh, Atlas was doing uh, 10 years ago. 
And when you look at what Atlas was doing even longer, I believe, I believe they first started developing Atlas, say, around 2007, 2009. And you can find those old videos, and it's very, very clunky. It's, you know, it's obvious that uh, there are a lot of kinks to be worked out. Well, they've worked out a lot of those kinks. It's not perfect. It takes a lot of power, and it takes a lot of babysitting. But you look at that development, unless you think that it's just going to stop there, uh, then you're, you're looking at a pretty wild future in the next 10 to 15 years, especially in regards to robotics. And you brought up the whole scenario of nefarious purposes and police and military, uh, you know, pull, pulling something like that. Right. I, I think it's, that's inevitable. You know, when, when these government, you know, entities, when these different organizations and, you know, and the higher ups get, get their hands on stuff like this, of, of course they're going to abuse it. Of course they're going to try to, take it to the highest extent and see how crazy they can get with it. I mean, and with everybody, with so many police officers quitting, I mean, that's another big problem in itself. Um, you know, all these people stay and all these people staying at home from minimum wage jobs. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of ways that robots can really fill the voids. You know what I mean? And, I, I just, but I do worry what you were talking about with the nefarious stuff because if these robots start walking the streets and giving orders and they're programmed to say certain things, which some of them are, are already programmed and they can do a lot, a lot of things humans can do, if not more, uh, it's scary. It's, it's, you know, there've been, uh, you've got DigiDog in New York, and I believe yep. DigiDog was rolled out also in San Francisco and Hawaii, mm -hmm. if, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly New York. It's really, it's not like a DigiDog is running down the street, killing people or, you know, stopping crime. It is more symbolic at this point than anything. Uh, and then you, and you had during the pandemic, if you recall, uh, especially early on, you had the drones that were given by DJI Enterprises uh, from China given to some 20 to 22 states so that people, so that the police force, the local state police force could monitor and occasionally bark orders at the populace uh, with their drones. Uh, that was fairly short-lived. It wasn't short-lived in China. That's still normal there. Uh, but, you know, that was another instance where you see they're kind of testing the waters, they're testing the equipment. Uh, you know, in the military, uh, what, what are real militarized robots and they're used all the time but they don't necessarily if you're looking at it it wouldn't necessarily bring to mind a robot sometimes it's just a gun turret uh that it could have e is easily been controlled by a human being on the other end but it's being controlled by algorithms maybe with a human being saying okay go fire but everything else is being done by algorithms and certainly when you look at the drones that are being used right now in ukraine uh that were used in the war with uh, azerbaijan uh, in, um, uh, I'm sorry, Azerbaijan and the, uh, anyway, I, I'll need a, a, a neural link to remember the very obvious nation, uh, the Arme Armenia and Azerbaijan, the drones really became a very important element to that war. But in, in a, the most advanced drones used that are the most frequently used really, they, they more resemble airplanes with no windows, right? Or very small airplanes that look kind of like model airplanes. They're not, for the most part, those quadcopter swarms that people are imagining. It could very easily be that, 
but I, I think that the importance of that, the importance of this militarized, uh, automated militarized weapon systems is that it gives you a preview and it shows a sort of, it is a, definitely a stepping stone to the more advanced uh, uh, weaponry. And even if it's fairly humble now, I think it's actually really, really important, but humble in comparison to some Terminator-like scenario, uh, it sh shows two things. Either one, we could well be on our way to a Terminator-like scenario, or, or two, uh, maybe we never get there and stay exactly where we're at right now. It's horrific enough where it is. I got to ask you, what do you make of these deep fake uh, technologies and uh, chat GPT? I mean, there's a lot of it's dangerous territory, my friend. Chat GPT is constantly wrong on so many things. They're very biased. They're very left leaning. Uh, they don't want to tell the truth. They don't want to be fair. And then you've got people that can do the, the face, uh, the fit, the what do you call it? The deep fakes. Where they can play, you can basically frame somebody in the future. I can see that happening, uh, and scary. It's just crazy. I just can't. This all this stuff just keeps coming. You know, I, I think if we already had a stable society with a lot of trust, it wouldn't matter as much. But you already have a society where people are very polarized, and within the, those camps, very balkanized already. So people already don't trust each other, and they don't trust that each other human beings face to face are telling the truth. You bring that into the online realm and you get all of the silos that form algorithmically. And, and these people basically function sort of like cyborgs. They identify as much with their online persona as they do with their own lives in many cases. And so you already have that and you have that constant back and forth. They'll never see eye to eye. They never really believe what the other is saying. And, and to be honest, they oftentimes bad actors in all these camps are lying their faces off. So you already have polarization and you already have the human propensity to lie. Now add to that the ability to replicate uh, artificial personas online, either through social media or through emails or through text messaging. And people, it's, it is not difficult at all in the grand scheme at this point for either a large scale or a uh, a corporation, a large-scale political organization, uh, or even just individual bad actors with enough resources to deploy armies of artificial minds online to manipulate people and to create like you know very personalized messages. And with GPT technology or any of the other large language models that are sufficient, let's just say that if somebody's a high a IQ of 100 or so below, that's half of the population by default, uh, they're not going to necessarily have the tools to the, 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 the critical thinking tools to see through that. And to be quite honest, if you go to the other side, you see so many really brilliant people get duped by all sorts of stuff that just humans did. It wouldn't surprise me if you would have a lot of the same problems over there. So uh, all this is to say that, you know, as these technologies go forward and without ways to restrict them, uh, we are definitely in for a, a Philip K. Dick type world in which you already have people who don't trust each other. And now you have this digital layer of deception. Uh, that's not to mention the, the facial deep fakes, the most sophisticated of which uh, are really, really amazing. And just assuming that it doesn't stop here, I think if it stopped right here, it would, we would be okay. But if, this, if the technology continues to improve, and especially if it gets cheaper, it's going to be much, much easier to flood the zone with the Philip K. Dick world where people, you're never sure if you're talking to a replicant or not, if you're, on, if you're online. And uh, just a real quick note on that, 
Sam Altman has offered a solution. You know, Sam Altman being the CEO of OpenAI and uh, the creator, and ultimately the man standing over the creation of GPT and flooding, you know, be basically responsible for flooding the internet with bots. Well, in order to uh, distinguish human beings from bots, uh, he's also funding WorldCoin. WorldCoin, uh, where they can get identified by your iris. That's, that's right, yeah, a biometric identity attached to your digital identity. And one of the purposes that, are, that is proposed, aside from universal basic income, one of the purposes is to prove your humanness online. So he's created the problem of artificial personalities flooding the internet, and he's created this, he's funding the solution of uh, attaching your iris to your digital identity so that you can have the privilege of being online it's an, it's absolutely mind-blowing i have to ask you what do you make of this uh, centralized digital currency nonsense that the world economic forum wants to put into place and all these 15-minute cities and all this other bullshit i'm sure you've done your research on this stuff absolutely you know the book goes into it a lot um but you know, the World Economic Forum is, I think, most interesting because they are mouthpieces for some of the most powerful uh, financial organizations, technological organ you know, tech organizations, biomedical organizations, and political organizations. Like, that's where what you see presented at the World Economic Forum, the sorts of writing you see coming out of the World Economic Forum, all that sort of stuff, it really does just reflect uh, a kind of average of these different elite organizations. So I think they're a really, really important organization to keep an eye on because you do get a real sense of the really bizarre ideas that are acceptable. No one is is is, is protesting this. This is obviously what is, for some of these extremely powerful organizations, desirable. So if you look at just uh, quickly, uh, central bank digital currencies, the CBDCs, this is something that is being rolled out all over the world right now in its test phase. Uh, the U.S., I believe, is, is scheduled. It's, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but it, within, a, I believe, the next year, year and a half, we should see the issuing of central bank digital currencies. And the last I read, it's going to be a blockchain-based currency. It'll basically be like an official Bitcoin. Um, and it's not something that's just going to be tomorrow. And if it was just going to be tomorrow, it would be a lot easier I think because people would be really, really jarred by it. But I believe this will probably roll out over the course of many years, uh, maybe five, uh, maybe longer. And in the same way that people have become very accustomed to using Apple Pay or a credit card or a debit card uh, or any other sort of digital payment system or digital access system. And as people have become more and more acculturated, rather than just having this immediate uh, intrusion that slow drip uh, allows for these systems to be erected without a whole lot of protest. People just simply become used to it. And some people, they would never want to do without it. And so I really worry, especially with central bank digital currencies or digital currencies in general, where your bank is just shutting you down, like, no, you are now debanked. You can no longer use us. Uh, I think that this is a, these are really, really dangerous trends towards centralized control of human behavior uh, free speech, obviously, and uh, political organization, just the freedom of association. I think that if you have a, an economic system that can shut off your currency and that tracks everything that you do, that it opens the door to the power grabs we've already seen over the last 20, 30 years, but it, it, it really seems to be poised to accelerate and become, uh, for all uh, intents and purposes, 
inescapable. And that's the real fear. Like right now, you can, you can, there are parallel economies that we can use and even just cash can be used. But fast forward to a world in which the whole world is under that system or even just the most important power centers are under that system. Uh, yeah, you might be able to go live in a slum in Mexico City and you'll be just fine. Uh, but if you want to get by in Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Seattle, New York, if you want to get by in any sort of civilizational center and that becomes the norm, biometric payment systems, biometric ID systems, more invasive systems that are proposed, not just by the paranoiacs, but by people such as, say, Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, in which he, he really does have this fetish, this dream of biodigital implants becoming normalized. And you start adding that degree of invasiveness. Well, I mean, obviously, we're in beast system territory. I was just going to ask you about that. The chips, the implants, um, you know, Elon, among many others, wants to do that in the brain. And there's other people that want to put it in the hand and the wrist as like a payment kind yeah. of method and an identify, identify, identification method. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that this is in some ways, just the natural progression of where certain technologies are going to kind of want to go, right? You, you, you have enough people who want to build them. You have enough people who want it to exist. And then you have the possibility of the technology coming into existence. In that sense, it's somewhat inevitable. And so you have uh, right now three major brain chip companies that are doing brain computer interfaces uh, with the addition of those in China. And that's uh, you know, Neuralink under Elon Musk, BlackRock Neuro Neurotech funded by Peter Thiel and uh, Synchron, which is funded by uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, along with all the other resources going into it. You have DARPA, the Defense Advanced uh, Research Projects Agency that really is responsible for funding a lot of the, uh, the labs that have made this possible over the past few decades. Uh, you have in China a, n a number of different organizations working on this stuff. And uh, there's one in particular, a labor laboratory, I believe it's called uh, the Six, Six Hahi Laboratories, something to that effect. My Chinese is a little rusty, uh, but I think it's the Six Hahi Laboratory, and it's, uh, it's roughly 60 scientists, all of which are working on exactly that, how to link the brain to artificial intelligence. And the success that they've made, uh, you know, they, they, they've had a lot of successful projects already with BlackRock Neurotech. They're at like 50 patients right now paralyzed people who are able to operate in a simple way at computer systems with nothing but their brains. Uh, the same with Synchron. Synchron has certainly over, uh, I would say, a half dozen, if not a dozen, maybe more. And Neuro, uh, uh, Neuralink is on, uh, on track to start testing on humans in the very near future. Uh, the, the FDA has approved it, so however long that is. Honestly, though, I got to say this, uh, I think that that becomes a distraction in many ways because Brain computer interfaces are probably not going to be normal in the very, very near future, certainly not implanted ones. What is probably going to be normal in the very, very near future is that uh, what is already here, the black mirror, the smartphone, uh, will continue to spread across the planet and do what it's doing right now, which is transforming people's psychology and their social networks and the way in which people socialize, the way in which business is done. And then you'll also have other things sort of like instead of a palm chip, which is really kind of redundant, you see the, the palm payment systems that are rolled out at Amazon. 
And, uh, you know, Amazon One now, every Whole Foods in the country is on track to have a palm payment system. It's just your biometrics. Uh, you also have them at Panera Bread. You have them in entertainment venues now. And so as that becomes normalized, I don't really see a meaningful difference between people being chipped and people just simply having their biometric identity attached. It's basically the same. Uh, the only difference is the chip can actually hold data, and whereas the biometrics needs an external system to hold your data. Uh, other than that, the, the whole thing's the same. And as that becomes more and more normal, and they're able to sell people on the chip, perhaps you'll see more of the implants. But all this is to say that I, I think that uh, to focus too much on the implants is to miss all the things that are happening right now. And you don't really need a, a much, a smartphone functions as a low grade brain chip slash palm chip. I, I would argue that to the very end, that all the things that they want to do with a palm chip and most of the things they want to do with a brain chip, uh, the smartphone already does through your eyeballs and through your hand. Can I ask you, you know, as much as I love TikTok, as convenient as convenient as it is, as as accessible, and just it, it just comes so quickly and it reads your mind. Very dangerous. Very absolutely. Yeah, I mean the fact that it can just pick up on all the things we like, and it can just it, it has that sort of formula and that technology built in. I mean that is something that is going to get even more evolved. And I mean, if we if we think it's bad right now, I mean they they are basically there. It's it's amazing. I can't even I can't even describe it into words. Everything that I love comes right up at my fingertips. I don't have to manually search for anything. Yeah, I, I've never played with TikTok, but I've certainly heard the stories. And I, I you know TikTok just represents a more advanced version of what you already have with Facebook, uh, what you have with Twitter. But everyone that I know that's either used it or written about it or analyzed it and tried to get at what the algorithms are doing, they've all said, and I, I take their word for it, yours as well, that TikTok represents a new level of all that. And I, I think that it's all, all of it together, the entire system itself, if we don't leave it behind, and I don't think everybody's going to leave it behind, but I think that a significant proportion of people would love to, and I hope that they do, but even if we don't leave it behind, we have to figure out a way to continue being something like a healthy human being in this environment. And I don't think that enough people are thinking about that. Some are, absolutely. But I don't think enough are. And I think that we really are barreling uh, headlong and blindly so into ever increasing uh, social revolutions in which the intensity just ramps up and ramps up and ramps up and, and, and does so in very irresponsible directions. Irresponsible, if for no other reason, there is really no plan. It's like, oh, I've created this gadget, look what I can do with it. Uh, and then disseminate it among the population. That's all part of capitalism, it's all part of the free market. Uh, but without a doubt, whatever we do going forward, we're going to have to figure out how to live with it. Otherwise, we are going to be either zombified or maybe we won't be living too much longer anyway. I mean, could you see a day um, where, and a lot of billionaires have talked about this, could you see a scenario where we die, but our entire brains and our minds basically transfer over to an operating system so people can still interact with us, talk to us? Have you heard that too? 
Because Elon of course, talks yeah, about yeah. it. A lot of people yeah, have uh, talked about it. Where, and I think that's beyond fascinating. Like, it's all that's crazy. That's something out of a movie. And if that can become a reality, holy moly. Well, it already is in a very superficial way. Uh, because but, you can, you know, they did the thing with freezing people's bodies and maybe yeah. one day they can come back to life. That's a separate thing. But this whole electronic database with your brain going into it, I'm just, I'm just like, wow. Yeah, you know, digital immortality is one way to, to look at it or mind uploads, mind cloning is another way of, of describing it. Um, you know, they, they, they postulate a lot of different ways. Some ways involve transferring actual structure from your neurons into a computer so that you scan the physical brain and that becomes part of it. Some of it uh, is the idea is to just slowly but surely replace the biological neurons with uh, silicon uh, transistors, which seems very unrealistic at the moment. But um, the way it's being done right now, and I mean, this is, again, it's very superficial. It's very clumsy, but it's happening as we speak, it's happening with this conversation, actually. The idea is to take all of the output of a human person, the personality, the, uh, as much of the biological system as you can, the social networks, all these sorts of things, basically take all of the data that's being gathered by Google, that's being gathered right now by any web crawler that's going over this, uh, that goes over your Facebook personality, your Twitter personality, your TikTok personality, all these things and create a mind file. Ray Kurzweil spoke about this quite a bit in his book, The Singularity is Near. It was taken up by Martine Rothblatt, the transgender transhumanist who is presently on the board of the Mayo Clinic and uh, also extremely wealthy, extremely successful, um, very much believes that transgenderism is a sort of cultural and technological link to transhumanism. But uh, Rothblatt founded Terrorism. And terrorism is, they literally, they file as a religion. I mean, you know, they, they're tax exempt. And the idea, one of the ideas, they have many, many, many ideas, including creating a computer that will be God. But uh, terrorism, uh, they, the, I think they have some 67 or so, or 63,000 adherents or customers or whatever you want to call them. And they create mind files. It's one of their disciplines. And so what you're doing is you're doing everything that we do here. Uh, online, uh, it's just more centralized and you try to gather all that data and you, the, the hope is to use artificial intelligence to replicate you. And with GPT technology, with deep fake technology, whether it be verbal deep, uh, deep fakes, vocal deep fakes or facial deep fakes, uh, and even in a very, very primitive sense, robotics, you take all of these different technologies, it's already possible to resurrect people. They, they aren't exactly themselves. They're kind of deformed ghosts. But uh, if you're familiar with um, podcast.ai, uh, they have done a number of podcasts using large language models to train on people. And the most jarring, they've actually taken it down for some reason, but you can find it uh, if you dig. The most jarring was Joe Rogan interviewing Steve Jobs. And it's clunky. You would never, if you listen for very long at all, you would realize something was wrong. But what you really realize is how close it is. And I think it's that it's how close it is that bothers more than how far away it is. And Steve Jobs talks about God and all these things. And it's um, and it's entirely the creation of a, of a large language model. And people are like, oh, well, they just programmed it to say that stuff. Not exactly. They train it. 
then once a, a, a sufficiently complex AI is trained, it really does make its own decisions. At that point, it has a, a wide field to choose from. No human is directing it. Uh, without that, you can steer it, you can nudge it, uh, you can force it. At that point, you've you've, you've uh, eliminated its use. But a, a real advanced AI does what it wants, and if you train it on Steve Jobs, it becomes a sort of willful Steve Jobs that, that endures long past the person has died. Yeah, and have you seen all these artists, these musicians that are having songs created by AI and it sounds yeah. just like them? And there's actors that are selling their rights so people can use their face as AI on the screen in the future yeah. so they don't. these actors don't even need to be present on set. I mean, we're heading into new times, man. It's and it's uh, to me. It's all very much a, an abomination. It's it's very blasphemous. I, I I hope that most people reject it. I think at at present most people are very creeped out by it. They don't like it, but most people were very creeped out and didn't like techno for a long time too. And people were very unnerved by rock and roll, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, you see, it only takes a generation or so for that revulsion to either wear out or just become irrelevant. If the young want it, that will be what the next generation chooses and that will be the culture. And you brought up regulation earlier. And that's something I think we always need to be careful about because sometimes it can go way too far the way they kind yeah. of restrict things. How would you go about that if you were in charge just to make sure it was level playing field and it wasn't, you know, too, it wasn't too restrictive. So it was still, you know, in a way, as long as it's used properly accessible. If you put me in charge of a city, I would be draconian in my treatment of technology. I would, I would ban as much as possible from my city. If, if this is a good reason, nobody's going to put a crown on my head and mm -hmm. call me King. I'll tell you that, but uh, you asked, so I'll tell you, uh, yeah, on a local level, I think the elimination of these technologies is going to be necessary if you want to remain in the control group of this global experiment. Uh, on a state and national level, it's obviously going to have to, there's going to be a lot of compromise and there's a lot of pitfalls, a lot of moving parts. I do think that a certain degree of regulation on deep fakes would be very, very good. I think it would be, um, I, I think it's important that if somebody is basically imitating someone online and pretending to be them, uh, that that should be illegal and punishable by severe penalties. But the problem you have there is that the way that these laws tend to be applied, the, the, the smaller parties take the brunt of it, uh, whereas the larger platforms uh, can get away with a lot more. So you can be sure that, for instance, if they've licensed it, they'll keep deep faking uh, uh, John Lennon. They'll keep deep faking, faking Kurt Cobain and Tupac, uh, and that will become a normal part of the culture. Whereas if you screw around and do a, a parody of somebody, and get caught, you could end up going to jail to some small timer. And that's the problem that we have with this system in general. We don't really have the rule of law. So you begin with these social problems that already exist. You add the technology. It just seems like uh, whether you accept it or you use the, the system to reject it, you run into very similar problems. I'll give you one other example from a, a large national uh, perspective, because right now you see a lot of people in Congress uh, they are they're presently working to and some of them, I think, are in very much in good faith, but they're working to figure out how we're, we're going to regulate AI. 
they're doing so in partnership, though, with a lot of the major companies that are causing the problem to begin with. Then I get the idea, okay, if you have insiders in these businesses, they'll be able to inform the politicians. But that's not what we tend to see. When the banking industry works close with Congress, the banking industry wins and we tend to lose. Uh, when the pharmaceutical industry works close with Congress, they tend to win, we tend to lose. Uh, same with agriculture, same with uh, education, which is a different story, but the same problems. So if you have Google and OpenAI and Microsoft calling the shots and Congress is crafting legislation on their word and on their advice, then it's going to be working out for them. And small scale programmers who may not be wanting to do anything but help people uh, are gonna either have to jump through hoops in order to do what they want or just not be able to do it at all. So it's a real, it's a major, major problem that we're, we're, it really will require a lot of balance. And I think that giving this government right now uh, any more power at all is, a, is a, a horrific prospect. Whether or not another government could be entrusted with that power is yet to be seen. And I, you know, you would have to, we would have to first have a trustworthy government before handing more power. But if you don't, and I, and I think that probably no meaningful legislation will be passed before major changes happen, then that means these corporations will have that power. Uh, and in, in effect, it's just another centralized form of social organization. It's not a government, but if the corporation, if, you, if your livelihood is, is dependent on a corporation, and if every choice that you have is dependent on a very small number of corporations, they might as well be the government. So I, I, when people ask, like, well, how do you even approach this problem? Uh, I, I think that it will be important for politicians to approach it. I think it'll be important for uh, entrepreneurs to off, offer better alternatives. But as just a person to person, I think that the, the biggest task ahead of us is to figure out where we're going into this wilderness and where we want to go into this wilderness and fight for that. Because I, if people don't start drawing their lines now, then the, before they know it, those lines would have, the, people, the various tech corporations and, and governments employing these technologies will have already crossed those lines. They already have in so many ways. I mean, the, the normalization of, of surveillance, mass surveillance, it had almost no public outcry. Uh, so I, you know, in short, I think that looking at this in terms of how do you survive in this coming era, those are the important questions, not necessarily how do you steer the government. No, no, absolutely. I, but I have to ask you, look at how big tech owns most of these politicians. So how are yes. we supposed to deal with the problem, you know, in the right way when if yes. big tech gives them all this money? They're going to allow big tech to use these things for nefarious purposes. And then big tech's going to make deals with them and the government to give them these products. And then it's just an ongoing cycle. You know, what's also interesting, too, I mean, it makes the landscape difficult to get a, a beat on, at least at first. But you have a lot of different political persuasions in tech. So uh, they fly under the radar. But you do have people like Peter Thiel who are very much right wing, uh, yeah. or you have people like Mark Andreessen, who's a libertarian, but certainly much more amenable to free speech and for the inclusion of right wing thinking in the public square. Also driving this forward, this technological revolution, and in the case of Teal, contributing to various Republican candidates. Uh, Elon Musk, somewhere in between, but you know, Elon Musk is at this point no longer anything like a conventional liberal, at least in his outward sort of persona. 
And, and so whatever technologies he's bringing on are going to kind of fit in that centrist or even maybe center right model. Whereas companies like Google, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, Amazon, they're sitting on much different uh, places on that political spectrum. So all of these tech, you've got the government itself, and then you've got these tech companies with a, a, at least some variety of viewpoints, but all of it ends up being an arms race towards the rapid development and rapid adoptions of these novel technologies. And so if from a, the standpoint of a normal person who wants to get through their day and get through their life with some degree of uh, consistency and some degree of self-control, self-will, uh, self-determination, in every imaginable scenario, there is a possibility that that's going to be either challenged or squashed. And that's the, really the problem we face. Oh, I, I hear, I hear you, man. And I, I will say this, that, um, these, these, these bio labs that are being funded, doesn't that concern you as well? Absolutely. Uh, at this point, there it's are, very just, it's just, it just seems like there's so many things. I mean, we sell what we sell weapons to terrorists. I mean, we do like the government does so much horrible things. And now that AI is all over the place, it's just crazy and bio labs. I mean, it just goes on and on, man. Yeah, I, you know, every time is a dangerous time. Uh, the dangers of this time, I think, really are, it, it, people oftentimes compare these things to nuclear weapons. I think that that's by and large accurate, especially the, 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 the more modern view of what nuclear weapons or nuclear war really mean. Uh, it's not like, uh, it's not as, as totalizing as it was imagined in the 60s. In the 60s, it was imagined that if we went to nuclear war, everything would just get blown up and that would just be it. Earth would be a cinder. Now, especially in the, you know, seeing what happened in Chernobyl, even seeing the, rem the remnants of uh, Fukushima, seeing uh, what's happened there and how, how quickly they did recover, you know that nuclear weapons are definitely the most terrifying, the most horrible weapons on Earth. <clears throat> but it wouldn't necessarily be that the whole planet died if we went to a nuclear war. And I think that the same could be said of the, the imagined dangers of runaway artificial intelligence and probably even the imagined dangers of runaway bioweapons, unless it was at the most extreme end, most likely is just what we're facing is the potential for very large, maybe widely distributed, but ultimately uh, contained disasters. Now, and I, I think that while I don't necessarily recommend people go out and, you know, get real estate with caves so that they, they can live in them, uh, I, I do think that some degree of awareness of how unstable the time we are in really is and how unstable the time we're going into really is, is going to be, uh, it will do you well as we go forward. I don't think that any, anybody who thinks this is it and it's just going to stay the same from here, uh, I, am, I do not have a crystal ball, but uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it ain't going to stay the same. I, this ain't it. If you were a betting man, what do you anticipate happens? Uh, something between the matrix and the idiocracy. Wow, dude. And that, how long until that comes about? I think, I think we're already there. I mean, how long do you think until it fully kicks in? You never know how long it takes for, uh, you know, until you've seen a tree ripen, you never know how long it'll take for the fruit to ripen. So that I don't know, but I do know that at this pace, um, you know, I say when I say the matrix, I really do mean people who are kind of unable to distinguish between reality and fantasy, of which there are plenty already. 
And when I say idiocracy, I mean people who either on a genetic level or probably just a purely phenotypic level uh, become stupefied and dependent on machines, uh, the machines themselves being pretty stupid as well. I, I think that some combination of that, we already exist in it and have for most of our adult lives, you know, middle-aged. And uh, I, I think that at this rate of change, it's just going to be an, an increase of that. People are going to be less and less able to determine what is and isn't real. Uh, people are going to be less and less able to make their own choices, A, because they don't have the information to make the choice, and B, just because they're stuck in a digital system that limits the amounts of choices. Uh, again, we're already there. All the signs are that it's increasing. There are cracks in the system now, though, and the system, it, it, it ebbs and flows, right? You saw how, how draconian the response to COVID was, but it has, by and large, retreated at the moment. Um, so it's always going to be that I, I do not have like some sort of very simple vision of the future, mainly because I think the future is so unpredictable, but it's, to me, it is very, very unlikely artificial intelligence has capped out. And so I think artificial intelligence as it exists now is going to be integrated increasingly in places that it hasn't already been. It's already deeply integrated into finance and the military. I think it's going to also be integrated very deeply into day-to-day -day economics and into education. And I think it's going to be really, really important. Uh, as far as robotics goes, I think that autonomous vehicles, cars, electric self-driving cars, that that is something to keep an eye on. Because if they get past some of the hurdles they're at now, uh, they will be normalized in ways that can really, really impinge on human freedom. That's not to mention having an Alexa in your home or an Optimus robot, assuming that Elon Musk ever makes one. Uh, and then as far as genetic engineering goes, I don't see a day in the very near future where they're turning, you know, someone goes to order their humanzy baby and they have like a half human, half chimp, uh, uh, you know, or they, they start injecting themselves to grow alligator fangs. I don't see anything like that happening in the near future. I think that as far as humans altering the genome, that's going to go very slowly. What I think could happen very, very quickly and is happening right now in its, in its earliest phases is eugenics. Just the, uh, the correlation of the genotype with uh, psychometric uh, uh, quantification, so IQ with your genotype, uh, looking at other measures, uh, be they physiological or emotional measures, that being associated with genotypes. And as genetic screening becomes more and more sophisticated, right now they screen, uh, they screen zygotes for Down syndrome, uh, they screen for things like Tay-Sachs, they screen for certain cancers, uh, and people will just uh, basically artificially produce 10 to 15 zygotes and eugenicize or, you know, uh, kill off uh, 14 of them, keep one, maybe they keep two, and, and plant that into a womb. So this is already happening among those who are wealthy and well-connected, this eugenic process. I, 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 it happened in a major way in the early part of the 20th century where eugenics really took hold of the intelligentsia. And now I think that um, the possibilities of more and more normalized eugenic policies, uh, they're really opening up. As I say, it's already happening on a small scale, but uh, the potential for it to really happen on a large scale, I think, is, is going to increase going forward. And artificial intelligence, by the way, has a lot to do with this because in order to, to screen genes appropriately uh, and get all the detail, you need advanced algorithms. Uh, and also in order to predict what mutations would do or what certain genes do, uh, artificial intelligence just accelerates that process.
I agree. I agree. And I love talking to you. I got a few more questions for, for you before I let you go. Uh, we, we were talking about artificial intelligence and I wanted to bring this up. Don't you think, like if, if we look back the last couple of years, I would say even the last five, and I would say this started probably five years ago. I mean, when, we, when people are listening to our conversations, a couple minutes later, you'll see it pop up on your newsfeed. Alexa, yes. Alexa has been around for many years now and it tracks everything. So, I mean, I feel like a form of AI has been around for a while, but yes. now we're really getting into the big boy, big boy league. Absolutely. I mean, the, the distinction between algorithms and AI is a fuzzy one. It's not, you know, people just draw the lines different places, but uh, as far as uh, AI goes, a lot of people, they, they jump from algorithm to AI at, at machine learning. Mm -hmm. So the machine itself is training and generating uh, new patterns in the data or new ways of looking at the data, right. uh, new analyses. And the machine learning is, is really, to me, that cutoff point. And that's been in use for a long time in right. finance uh, and it, also in education and in, in the, some of the more advanced education uh, software, the the way in which human you know students are ranked and evaluated is largely dependent on these on these algorithms and on and on and on and on Netflix, uh, TikTok, uh, all these things that we live within a sea of algorithms. And now you have much more advanced systems that are really getting people's attention mainly because of the direct impact they're going to have on our lives. The large language models from GPT to BARD or Lambda, uh, and then some of the upstarts like um, Chinchilla or Llama from Meta uh, or Anthropic. Uh, and, and then you have the visual generation, the art generators, you've got the music generators. So it's it really, it's, we're poised to be in a place where instead of just having techno culture, you literally have culture that's uh, created by technology. And people will say, oh, well, humans made all that stuff. They're just remixing it. That, what do you think that all of techno culture was, right? I mean, that, and, and that's become a very dominant element. Uh, you know, show me a, a new movie that doesn't use electronica. So I, I think it, we're, we're just going to see an increase of things that are already here, that were already here. But uh, these new forms that they're taking, the, the, the AI, the visual generators are astonishing, especially the, the video generators. And the music you were just talking about, that's also astonishing and very gross. So uh, that coupled with large language models, I think that people really aren't prepared for how deep an impact it's going to have. And, and I think one reason too, I suspect it may not be as obvious as you would think. I think now that the shock has worn off, just the slow creep of AI generated text, AI generated visuals and AI generated music or vocals uh, that that's just going to come in and it will have come to a position of dominance before people even notice if that happens. And what about all this tracking, man? What about all this tracking? I mean, we've been tracked on our phones for years. They're listening to all our calls. Uh, I can only imagine that's going to get worse. I mean, what well, mean? the big thing is, you know, the, the problem that the NSA and various other and corporations, even Google have had forever is that they have sensors everywhere. They have data plenty. They have more than enough data. There was the famous uh, data centers that were built out in Utah yeah. that supposedly all of our communications were hubbed through, but they don't have a way of organizing it. They don't have a way of getting at it and making sense of it. I mean, yes, they have red flag, they have words that will flag you 
uh, yes, there, if you're a person of interest, it's very easy just to target you and literally monitor everything you're doing online. Uh, that's very, very easy to accomplish. What's not easy to accomplish is getting at the data in the aggregate, getting the big picture. With artificial intelligence, it's becoming increasingly possible. These are not large language models doing it, although large language models can be used as part of it. Uh, there, it's everything from facial recognition, vocal recognition, uh, large language models, or at least language-based natural lang language processing. Uh, it's uh, social network analysis. It's psychological profiling. Uh, all these different types of algorithms are advancing and, and as they feed off of each other and as they become integrated, yes, what is already present, <clears throat> a surveillance system that was put in place before 9-11 and legitimated after 9-11, that surveillance system, it, we run into two problems. One, they create a really good AI and their values don't allow, align with ours. And we find ourselves at the, the fuzzy end of the lollipop stick with, in regard to civil liberties. Uh, and, and the AI actually works well. That would be a nightmare scenario. The other nightmare scenario, though, is somewhere in between on the idiocracy end. Let's say they have a pretty good AI uh, that is pretty good at detecting uh, terrorists, but it's like the newest GPT-4, it's only 80% accurate. Mm -hmm. And they begin more and more to rely upon it. And you end up getting targeted completely out of the blue. Like you, you certainly are, had done nothing, uh, but this automated system has flagged you and you begin losing the ability to pay for things. Uh, you, you lose your ability to travel. God forbid you end up with a drone strike on your head. Uh, these sorts of things. So I think that both both worlds, the problem really is this development of mass technological systems, the dependency on those technological systems and the ways in which those of us down here in normal people world, um, the ways in which those systems can really curtail freedom or just completely crush you. I, I, I hear you. No, I, I hear you. And I got to ask you about the ban. Like they say they want to ban TikTok, but Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, have been taking more money from China and places like Saudi Arabia for, I mean, they've been take, they've been doing this for years and they're just as guilty as taking our data, tracking us, doing all these evil things. So why not ban everything? If you're going to ban one, why not ban everything? Isn't that your theory? Uh, my, me personally, if the entire, if, if we had a majority in the nation that wanted to ban all social media, I would, well, they, they make a big deal I mean, about TikTok, but they don't talk about all these other platforms. So that comparison. Um, so first off, yes, if, if they were going to ban, if, if, if I were king or if uh, I were advising Congress, ban it all. I don't really think any of the upsides have, have outweighed the downsides. I, and I, there are plenty of upsides. They did not outweigh the downsides. There, been, there are other ways we could have done that. But, um, you know, in the comparison of TikTok, the big difference there is that with so Google uh, has had a very contentious relationship with China very recently. Oh yeah, uh, when, and recently I mean the last five to seven years. Um, and Facebook YouTube, well. YouTube is owned by Google, and YouTube bans everybody. But keep going, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Facebook uh, or Meta, Google, uh, even Amazon to some degree, they are still centered in the West by and large. Yes, they're globalist. Yes, they're multi-culty as all get out. Yes, they hire foreigners in droves, but they're still at least, you know, the, the, the military system that they're dependent upon, uh, the, the society that they're parasitizing uh, is in the West. 
Whereas with TikTok, all of that data is being scraped and used by China. It's used by uh, the ByteDance, and then of course, it's being used by the Chinese Communist Party. So it's just another element in an already like an already unsavory stew, another element that stinks. I do think that it's really easy to forget all the stuff that Google, Facebook, and Amazon does that directly affects your life. That TikTok and, the, and honestly, the Chinese Communist Party don't. Uh, but at the same time, I, 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 I think that there is an added element when you have a surveillance system that has targeted children and is actively altering their, their psychology, is, is altering their behaviors. Uh, that's really important. Uh, it's, it's bad enough to have a, a local technocracy, but a foreign technocracy, I think, uh, it's just one more thing to hate about it. And I do, I do have to ask you one, like one more thing before we go. These whole vaccine scenarios, uh, first off, do you think they were genetic therapies? Second of all, what do you make of these lockdown surveillance programs that are, that are, at, that are they're already in place in many, in many ways, but they're going to keep getting worse? And um, we're talking about climate lockdowns. There's so much, so much here. Yeah, there are a lot of rumblings about climate lockdowns and a lot of rumblings about another pandemic. Uh, the system is definitely in place and the system has been tested. So that's a real problem. Uh, as, as far as the vaccine as a gene therapy, I, it, it's so murky. I, I've described it as a gene therapy because it's certainly much more of a gene therapy than, uh, you know, a, a, a traditional vaccine with denatured viruses or bacteria. Um, I think that so one of the most important accusations or one of the most damning accusations against these companies is that the mRNA vaccine is altering human genetics. So uh, what I've seen, I've seen uh, all the same rumors that everybody else has. I've seen all the same people who I think uh, are not arguing from a deep knowledge argue that it's turning us into all sorts of things. But um, the most important was a Lund University study. It was done in Sweden. and it was the what they did is they took liver cells human liver cells and they injected the mrna and it, you know created um the mrna the mrna created the the proteins but then it's in, in certain instances the mrna was being converted into dna so that little strips of dna that represent the spike protein were present in the cells what they did not test for was whether or not that was being incorporated into the genome and even doctors who I respect quite a bit have repeated the study as direct evidence that the mRNA vaccine is altering the human genome. Um, it may be. I don't know. Uh, but I, I guess that's where I, I land, because when you look at the study, it's very clear and they say so that they did not check. They did not check if it was incorporated into the genome. And when asked later, the team clarified that this is a big problem. We have to study it more. But they did not test to see if it was incorporated, meaning that uh, it's dangerous as all hell. I'm certainly not, uh, I, I didn't line up to take it. Uh, and I don't, I think most people would be wise not to, but um, it, it, the, the, it's, it, it's very tangled, the arguments around it. And a lot of that tangle is uh, warped by imagination. And I think that the imagination is really important. I think that the nightmare scenarios people imagine of them injecting us with shit that's going to alter our genome. At this point, you've seen the draconian nature of the system. You've seen how cruel they can be. And you can especially see how cruel they can turn your neighbors. 
So um, the possibility of that, I think, should be should be at the forefront of our minds. But I, I think that I've not seen the evidence that has happened. And the, the most important pieces of evidence don't necessarily say what people are representing uh, the, the studies or uh, various other evidence to say. Uh, talk, talking about the lockdown, sadly, we had about 70% that complied and the 30% yeah. the 30% of us fought back. And when the elites, when the higher ups see that 70% complied, they're going to continue to do this for power. And we're already seeing how they want to sell off our lockdown rights uh, to the what is it? The World Health? Who was it? World Health Organization. Yeah. So they would have yeah. ultimate control over every country and how, how the policy goes. Yeah. Look, uh, all the, you know, before the pandemic, there were all these rat traps that were set that ended up in, in the nightmare scenario that we saw unfold. Um, you look at Event 201, you look at the uh, Rockefeller doc document on scenarios of, uh, economic and technological development, the one that contains the four scenarios that include the lockstep scenario uh, from 2010. You look at uh, other tabletop exercises done by Johns Hopkins, aside from Event 201, uh, you had uh, Dark Winter, you had Claydex. Uh, all of those, none of that was done in secret, by the way. All that was done out in the open. Nobody just, nobody cared. And all of it showed the intention of what would happen. What would happen if we had a germ that we could leverage ultimately i don't see it as being as as coordinated as many do but i definitely see that all those systems were in place and that when it came time to strike they struck hard it was also very inept it was there was a lot of incompetence and a lot of self-contradiction that gives me hope because it just shows that there were a lot of cracks in that system and they weren't nearly as powerful as they thought they were i hope and and so the more people are aware of who did that to begin with, the more people are aware of what the real intentions of a lot of the most powerful corporations and ideologues on the planet, what their real intentions are right now going forward, uh, the better off we're going to be in regard to defending against the next onslaught and the better off we're going to be in figuring ways to remove them from power, uh, at least in America. And, you know, good luck to Europe and good luck to Australia and good luck to India. But um, and you know what? Good luck to China, too. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, Americans really need to figure out how to solidify power and, and on a local level and then and on the national level. For sure. No, for, for sure. I, I agree. And, and before you go, you know, I, I see that you toured the world world for rock and roll, country, rap, classical and cage fighting productions. Um, what was that like, man? Was that cool? It was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, uh, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about life. Learned a little about death, and uh, you know, I got to go a lot of places I wouldn't have been able to go otherwise. Uh, yeah. I, 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 didn't have a silver spoon to take take with me on my backpacking trip, so to speak. So it, it really it opened up a lot of doors, and I got to see you know some good shows. I got to see a lot of terrible shows. And learning the skills underneath it, I mean, you know, it's a direct relationship with the machine, right? A direct relationship with technology. And it's one that I enjoyed a lot. I did not like the kind of mind control conformist elements of 
mass entertainment that has it bothered me from day one. It bothers me now. But as far as being a little uh, cell in the in the the blood flowing through that machine, um, I loved uh, pretty much every minute of it. Even the shitty moments were great. Who who was somebody you were starstruck by? Somebody that you really loved that you got to meet up along the way during the, during all that music stuff. Wayne Cohen from Wayne Cohen from the Flaming Lips. Oh wow! So somebody you grew up watching, and then you finally got to meet. And also uh, Kim Gordon uh, from Sonic Youth and Thurston Moore. Oh wow, man! Well, you're you're a music guy, huh? Uh, a lot less so after working in the business for so long. You don't follow it as much anymore. You get desensitized, and you get older. But I, I still love music. I still listen to it. But uh, you know. I'll never hear it with the passion of my youth. And I guess nobody who gets old does, but boy, hearing, hearing the worst of it and hearing so much of it and seeing the machine that runs it, it definitely, you know, it'll do you in. It's sort of like if you were, if you worked in a factory farm and your job was to herd cows into the slaughterhouse and you saw them getting killed day in and day out. Uh, some people, it doesn't bother at all. Um, if I did that, the hamburgers would taste different. And so, you know, listening to music, the hamburgers taste different. I hear you, man. I hear you. And biggest takeaway you want from this new book? Give, give the audience the biggest takeaway from the dark aeon, transhumanism, and the war against humanity. The first thing you want to know is that this is a techno-religion. It's not just a technological system. The second thing you want to know is that many of the people operating in that system are operating on the assumption that... Uh, some or most or maybe all of humanity will be sacrificed to their ambitions. And the third is that all of that rides in, on, rides in on waves of propaganda. And it's going to be very, very important that you distinguish between what is hype, what is a, a lie, and what is real. Uh, I would love to, uh, to promise if you read my book, you'll be able to distinguish all of those. My hope is that I've provided enough tools for people to make their own decisions. I give suggestions. Uh, I don't tell anybody how to live. I don't want to be told. So um, I, I do hope that it provides the tools to approach the coming technological era, uh, both with a sane and clear mind and also with a, a clear eye for insanity, because I think the insanity is going to explode more than it already has. So yeah, Dark Eon, Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. You can find it at, uh, well, you can find it on The Beast. You want to go to Amazon, pre-sale there. You can also find it at bookshop.org, uh, at Barnes & Noble, and soon at Skyhorse Publishing. But uh, yes, uh, I, I do hope that at least some of your, your listeners will, will get some benefit out of it. And speaking of Skyhorse Publishing, Tony Lyons is a good friend of mine. He's been on my show many times. Love the guy. Oh, Love the guy. right on. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, so right genuine. On. He's so genuine, so down to earth, and I, he's an amazing, amazing businessman. And what he's doing with uh, Kennedy's book and how they've sold millions oh, of yeah. copies—it's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, the guy's incredible, Tony Lyons. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've only had the pleasure of meeting him once, but it was a fantastic night. It's kind yeah. of a stiff event, but yeah. uh, he, he made the stiff event a lot more fun. I'll tell you that. Um, and, and you know, we were kind of we we're part of the rowdy crew, so. I love yeah. it, and I, I, I love how he gives authors an alternative rather than these Simon Schuster companies and all these companies that are woke and won't do business. 
with you know conservatives or libertarians or people that are trying to spread a certain message that doesn't fit their narrative man uh tony lyons steve bannon uh, uh elaine lafferty who was the editor on the war room side and hector caroso who was the editor on the skyhorse side and yeah. the designer too um brian so sorry brian this is not at the edge of my tongue but um all all these people i, I gotta say as long as, as long as we're here and as long as we're talking about them uh, i owe them a lot they've done a, a lot to make all of this possible they give me every opportunity and they didn't insist that i was pc and i, I really appreciate that gotta love gotta love that that's the best part um but tell everybody where they can get involved where they can buy the book where they can connect with you on social media all that fun stuff well, if you're on the social media slave chain, you can find me at Twitter or Gitter at J-O-E-B-O-T-X-Y-Z. Link to the book right at the top uh, at warroom.org. Find me under the transhumanism tab. And then my website is jobot.xyz. Uh, also a link to the book there. And uh, one more time, a dark eon transhumanism and the war against humanity. I, I do hope you enjoy it, or at the very least, I hope that uh, you chuckle on the way to the apocalypse. Well, buddy, I really love having you on. I could talk to you for hours. This has been a fantastic interview. And let's chat again soon, my friend. Thank you very much, Rory. Have a Absolutely. good one. God Absolutely. Bless. God bless you and keep up the great work. Everybody, we'll be right back coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sauter and the News. Can you please tell the jury why you're here today? Ms. Hurt accused me of abuse. My ex-husband is suing me. Brutal, cruel. This is humiliating for any human being to go through. And all false. Amber Heard forever changed Mr. Depp's life and reputation. Behind the fame, you're going to see who the real Johnny Depp is. Depp was the one who wanted the cameras in the courtroom. She didn't. I would argue it's a PR campaign disguised as a defamation case. There's the man himself. It's been a social media circus of commentary from creators and influencers. Did you commit any kind of prank? Absolutely not. On my side of the bed was human fecal matter. moved away from a news story or a lawsuit. And it's transformed into a cultural moment. People are live tweeting. People are live streaming. Where does it end? The engagement is phenomenal. Videos can be very easily manipulated and republished. We're being influenced by bots interacting with bots. Johnny Depp is clearly winning right now in the court of public opinion. I've never been so scared in my life. She's acting. This trial is about so much more than Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Why are we all so fascinated with this case? Because they're famous, because of the details. What did the jury see? It just kicked me. It didn't happen. I don't know who to believe. I was hitting you. Mr. Heard, Mr. Depp is your victim, isn't he? This is not so much about the legal merit, but rather what the public perception is. And that leads us to the real question, which is, what is the actual truth?
lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you. world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. What's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a depus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back, the My Pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever, My Pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took My Pillow's patented bill 
and combine it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, my pillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that my pillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. My pillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of my pillow. The my pillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last my pillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. My pillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is going to give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side. Well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. And we are back. Rory Sodder and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest is Rick Thomas. He's had quite the career. He's doing a lot of big things right now. We're excited to talk to him. Rick, your first time on the program, my friend. Welcome. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun stuff. Sure. Roy, thank you for having me. Can you hear me? Am I coming through? Yeah, everything. I can see you. I can hear you. It's great. Outstanding. Well, uh, I was in jail when I was 15 years old. I was in the pharmaceutical business, which is a euphemistic way of saying that I smoked a lot of weed. When I was 25 years old, I like uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it was Ill illegal in my day. Yeah. Uh, in tw uh, at 25, I became a Christian. Prior to that, I had two older brothers who were in prison. Born and, were, born and raised Catholic. I love it. I had two older brothers that were in prison. They were murdered 10 years apart. And so I kind of became the poster child for a dysfunctional childhood, teenage years, very rebellious. God saved me. I became a Christian and I dedicated my life to uh, helping people. And so I've spent my adult life teaching people how to be better, do better. Uh, we're at lifeovercoffee.com and we believe that uh, any two people can resolve their problems over a cup of coffee. And so what I do is I create content that speaks to relational conflict, anger issues, addiction problems, marriage problems, parenting problems, and you name it. And so anything that the Bible speaks to, which is actually everything. Uh, I write about it, produce videos and podcasts, write books, et cetera. So that is the, uh, that's my life story. And uh, I'd say 120 seconds. Wow, man, that was, that was quite something. So let's go back. Let's go back a little bit. You know, I, I was kind of a, a rebellious kid, you know, uh, I uh, got suspended from school a lot when I was younger, got sent away to quite a few boarding schools. Um, you know, I've been arrested a few times, small stuff, small stuff. You know, I've had a few DUIs, but I've learned a lot of lessons. You know, we grow, we, right. you know, we make mistakes and uh, we, we do, we do things differently. And I think that's, that's oftentimes what makes us smarter. 
you know, because if you do, you know, you, you, you have, you have to, it's almost like you, you have to have experiments. You have to test, you have to, it's like you have to find out for yourself. I mean, this is all about being a human being, you know what I mean? Oh yes, I do. Uh, I, I became omniscient. It's like telling a kid not to put his hand on the stove and he's going to do it anyway, in a way. Yeah. Uh, and it's unfortunate and it's, uh, it's fortunate. I mean, it's just the way life is. So we have to deal with it. Everybody has to figure it out. Uh, no matter, I mean, we could turn around and look at history and say, don't do stupid things, but at the end of the day, we're going to do stupid things. But the real key is how you respond to those things. And right. so if you can flip the narrative of your life from horrible to good, right. then you will learn from those mistakes. But if you keep repeating the mistakes, well, then you haven't learned the lesson. And so I don't look back at my childhood regretfully or with any kind of like, oh, I wish that hadn't happened. Actually, I see all those hardships as gifts to me that actually established a platform to where I can be a means of help to a few people in my adult life. And so I see my past as a gift, not as a negative at all. But I know some people have a hard time flipping that narrative and really understanding how that evil can be used in redemptive, restorative purposes. And Rick, it is so refreshing to hear you say that because you're absolutely right. You know, the right thing to do is not regret those things because oftentimes when people have hard childhoods and hard upbringings and they see all this, you know, just tragedy, they become successful. Something good comes out of it. There's a silver lining because they, they, they know they know how to change. They know how to do things differently. They know how to maybe get out of that scenario, if that makes any sense. So it's like you see all these things and then you want to fix it and you want to help others. And then you want to, you know, make an impact. So and it yeah. makes us stronger. It makes us, it makes, it has, it makes us, you know, just more, um, I believe, uh, motivated and enthusiastic to be successful because Oftentimes we see successful people come from, in a lot of ways, broken homes, hard upbringings, people laughing at them, telling them they could never be anything, you know, people in jail uh, coming out, changing their life, becoming successful. I would say more than not, it's the ones that struggle in the beginning that end up becoming successful rather than the ones that are good when they're younger. And I think I would say more than not, those people live by the status quo, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's the gym uh, analogy, uh, weightlifting. Uh, it's resistance training. Right. And resistance. Like the harder you get hit, it's like the harder you keep going. You know what I mean? It's like. Right. And the danger is, uh, I mean, there is a fork in the road there. And, and some people see it as resistance training. They learn from their mistakes. And then there's another group that take the hardships that happen to them and they go down a victimology mindset. And when they go down that road, it never gets better for them. And, and so there are choices. I could have played the victim. These are bad things that have happened to me. Uh, but that's not how it went for me. And for that, I'm very grateful. And I try to encourage people not to fall into that victim mindset uh, because that is a box canyon and right. there is no there is no path forward and it will it will actually cause you to spiral in a very a downward way. Right. But suffering, 
resistance training, the challenges in our lives, they can make you stronger. And there are many people that can testify to that, as you say. Right. And I, I've had, I've been to, I've been to hell and back a million times. I've struggled with addiction, alcoholism runs in my family. Um, and you know, I've, I've hit rock bottom, but I've always bounced back because my biggest fear in life is failure. I will run through walls to win if I'm down and I, and I, and I'm down and I, and I, you know, am, am, am in the worst pain, I'll get back up. I just, I can't quit. It's not in my, it's not in my DNA. It's not in my mentality. I am perhaps the most competitive person. And there's been many times where I should have died from, you know, alcohol blackouts, alcohol poisoning, um, you know, overdose. I mean, I've overdosed a few times. I mean, there's, but, you know, and it's just crazy, but I just fought through. I kept coming back and I kept doing, you know, and I just kept staying in there. And, you know, it's one of, it really is one of those things. It's one of those things where you just have to be as resilient as possible. And, you know, it's like the more pain you take, it seems like the more you just keep growing and the more you keep, it's like nothing can hurt you if that makes any sense. Yeah. Perseverance is definitely a gift. And, uh, and the real key there is hope. Uh, there has to be some future hope that we're driving for. And if we don't have hope, we can uh, just give up. But if we believe that we can move forward, we can persevere, keep pressing on, the obstacles become those stepping stones that do make us stronger. Unfortunately, in the culture that we live in, there's a lot of people that just don't have that hope. They bought into a different kind of message. And so when they when they see the negativity, the hardship, they make different decisions. Right. And that's what we want to do is just try to encourage them that there is a better path. And for that, I'm quite thankful for my past because, I mean, I become a poster child of sorts. You become a poster child as well. Uh, and when you can be able to communicate your life story that, hey, yeah, bad things happen to people, but that is not the end of the story. This, this story, this movie that we're living in, uh, we're at the midpoint now. Uh, but there can be a good ending, but it, it really is determined on the choices that you make. And so you decide to get up off the floor. You decide to run through the wall. And if you make those choices, well, then this movie can turn out much better than what it looks like at this moment. And not enough people understand that bad things happening to them is, is actually a blessing. It's a blessing from God because it cannot always be rainbows and butterflies. There has to be hardships. There has to be suffering. There has to be bad days, you know, because think about it. If life was always happy, what lessons would we learn? What, what would we ever accomplish? I mean, what that, yeah, that would just be very odd, you know? Well, and it's it not, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's, yeah, it's not reality. I right. mean, as soon as we're born, uh, we're marching toward the grave. That's a morbid story, but the fact is that it's true. Uh, and if you have a utopian idea of how things can be, you're always going to be pushing in the wrong direction. As we see over and over again in our culture, they're trying to build utopian cities and utopian lifestyles. 
but it just doesn't work that way. Uh, you cannot remove all the thorns and thistles in our life. There's always going to be challenges and difficulties. And so there is a responsibility on us to do the work that's necessary. We just can't passively participate in life, expecting things are going to turn out well because we showed up. There are things that we really have to do to make a difference. Right. No, absolutely. And going back to your childhood, what age did you first get in trouble? Uh, oh, probably right after, uh, right out of the womb, I think. Uh, oh, man. When, how old were you when you first got arrested? Oh, I was 15 when I was arrested. What did you, what did you get arrested for? Okay. So, well, uh, as I said, I was in the pharmaceutical business and I needed some paraphernalia. And so, we oh, you didn't go into that. I, you, you said pharmaceutical business, but you didn't say, you needed paraphernalia. Okay, so I want to hear this. This is interesting. Well, if you're in the pharmaceutical business, you need paraphernalia. And so I may or may not have broken into our high school to oh. uh, get some equipment that uh, I needed for our business. Uh, we were, let's just say we had an entrepreneurial spirit. And yeah. And, and so we got the equipment that we needed. And unfortunately, uh, the sheriff's deputies had a different perspective on what we were doing. And so they arrested us. I spent only five days in jail. But I would say that that was the, the it was the worst thing that ever happened to me in many ways. But it was also the best because I they put me in What about your brother's dying? Wouldn't that be the worst? Well, there, there's other stories, yes. Uh, and so they put me in a 12 by 12 cell, uh, where basically solitary confinement. And, and I spent that time really just thinking that, hey, this is stupid. You know, I mean, how long can you just be stupid? And, and so that's when I started to make some changes in my life. Uh, yes, later on. Uh, yeah, I, I would think your, your, your two brothers dying would be the worst thing to happen to you. Well, that was later on. And yeah. so uh, I was 15. I'm going back real quick, the confinement thing. So you were in there five days. And so back back then, though, it was very easy, I assume, to get access to these, you know, pharmaceutical labs, whatever, to get, you know, some 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 feel good, you know, medication. Right. Is that what you were? Yeah, I mean, there there were no drones. Uh, there was no social media. Because yeah, I used to know people back in the day that would, they'd go to 10 different doctors and they'd write them prescriptions and they'd go to all these pharmacies and there wasn't a tracker. So they could just keep, you know, taking them like candy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, 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 it was a very low bar. Uh, you didn't have to be super intelligent, which I'm not sure how I ended up in jail because you didn't have to be that intelligent. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a turning point. Now, you're right. Years later, uh, this was uh, I was in jail in the mid 70s. Uh, my older brother, my first brother was murdered in 1987. So that was many years later. Uh, he had just gotten out of federal uh, the federal penitentiary. And then he was murdered. And then 10 years later, which was 1997, uh, my second brother uh, was murdered as well. And yeah, you're right. Those were horrific events um, uh, in my life. And, you know, there's lessons to be learned. And, you know, God used those things uh, in a redemptive, restorative way in my life. But yeah, uh, there's many mile markers back there where there's just one horrible event after the other. Yeah, and so your brother, so your brother, your first brother died. You said in what year? Nineteen eighty-seven. And did he die in jail? 
No, uh, he got out of prison and um, he broke into this home where this fellow was waiting for him. They had some conflict and the gentleman was waiting for him with a double barrel shotgun. Oh, God. Oh, no. he unloaded uh, both barrels. And uh, the best I can tell is that because uh, at the funeral, my brother's hands were all bandaged up in the casket. And so I think what happened is he put his hands over his face. And so it kind of mutilated his hands and then he fell down. Uh, then the gentleman took the uh, shotgun and grabbed the barrel and then used it as a sledgehammer. And he broke the stock of the shotgun over the skull. That's actually what ultimately uh, killed him again. That was 1987 In 97. My, uh, brother, real quick, two, real quick, the brother that died in 87, how close were you guys? Uh, we were not very close at all because, uh, he was, uh, five or six years older than me. And that really meant a lot, uh, as a child. And so by the time he was a teenager, I was just a little punk kid, you know, in fourth and fifth grade. And then he was in drugs and alcohol and getting into a lot of scrapes. He went to prison when he was 17, 18, the first time. And so he spent, you know, 12 years, uh, I think uh, 12 or 14 years in prison. He got out three times, but he was an incarcerated convict. Uh, and so he learned how to live on the inside. He had a hard time living on the outside. So he did things intentionally so that he could go back because he and that's what, uh, uh, not uh, uh, institutionalized is what I meant. Uh, he was an institutionalized convict uh, where he learned the ropes on the inside. And so he did things to uh, go back. And so he spent his virtually his entire adult life in prison. And so we were not hostile toward each other. We just didn't have a relationship because of geography. Uh, I would visit him in prison, but because of where he was, we could not build a relationship. But nevertheless, I mean, being murdered, being your brother, there is a history there. And of course, it was absolutely devastating uh, for all of our family. It, it was just a terrible event. Did you ever try to have a conversation with them and try to just give them guidance and just say, just come home, brother. Like, I want to help you. Like, I love you. Just please stop this. Yeah, that was the very last conversation I had with him. Uh, my brother was a player. I mean, he knew how to play people. He knew how to manipulate. Uh, and he had to uh, in order to survive. If you live in prison, you got to learn how to live in prison. And so you become all things to all people. You're Sounds familiar. like he was like a shot caller kind of guy. Like, yeah, you, you adapt. And, and so... You, you never know who you're talking to when you're talking to him. Uh, and, and so being aware of that, uh, you know, he's just a manipulator. Uh, but the last conversation I had with him, I so real, real quick, I just want to ask you, it sounds like his lifestyle in prison. He was one of the top guys people answered to, which is referred to as like a shot caller. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of those. He was also actually gifted. I mean, ironically, uh, Clyde King was the um, manager once upon a time with the New York Yankees. And uh, he came down to interview my brother uh, for baseball because my brother was, a, he was an athlete. He was actually a star athlete, uh, three-star athlete in uh, football, basketball, and baseball, but he was especially good at baseball. Um, and so that also gave him a leg up in prison as well. He was one of the best. And how, sa how sad is that, Rick? I mean, right. a, a star baseball player that, potentially could have gone pro, made millions of dollars, had a great life, 
marriage, with kids, but instead he chose prison. Like, you know, I don't even know the guy and that makes me sad. It really makes me sad because when I see people with all this potential and we see it every day in America, people have the gifts of, of gab and unlimited potential and they just waste it and they get incarcerated and their life's over. Like, right. That's just look what at, just look at the football player um, from what was it from Alabama, Riggs, Ruggs, the guy that. Oh, yeah. Right. Hit, right. Hit the, hit the pregnant, hit the woman and her baby killed him. And he just got he, he just got like, what, a three to 10 year sentence, like basically nothing. Like he killed two people. And because he had millions of dollars. Well, you know, it's just it's crazy that this guy got got the sentence he got. But anyways, that's a whole different story. But um, no, I'm just saying, you know, it, it's it's just it's crazy. It's crazy how these people ruin their lives. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier, is that there is a, a fork in the road. And so my brother had the same life I had. Uh, yeah. We had an abusive drunk dad. We lived in the same family. We experienced the same beatings. I mean, so it was a very similar life, uh, but uh, he chose to go down another path. And again, the irony is he was the most gifted of all of us, but because he was in prison, he could not pursue any kind of baseball career uh, with whatever the Yankees had in mind uh, with him. And so uh, I did have a conversation with him uh, the last time I talked to him and I told him, I said, I'll, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. I'll do anything that you want to, you me to do for you. Uh, but I will not take you to the drug people. I will not give you money to do drugs. And so let me help you. I will help you. I will be your friend. I will do whatever I have to do. But I know the crowd and, and, and I know where that takes you and you do too. And so I'm not going to be part of that. And so you, you could say it was kind of a tough love uh, conversation and he appreciated it because he had seen by that time that my life had straightened out and that I was a totally different person from what I was as a child. But the last thing he ever told me, he said, I, I, I can't do it. There's some things that I have to do. And so he was really caught in that lifestyle. And unfortunately, you can go so far in a particular lifestyle that uh, you're no longer in the control of it. I mean, it actually has you at that point. No, and once you, you try to get out. Yeah. Once you cross that line, uh, there, there is a point of no return. And that's my warning. You know, we can play with drugs and we can do this and we can live the life and, you know, walk on the dark side. But there comes a point where you cross a line and that can be the point of no return. And he was there. And of course, that was three months. Uh, it was in April of 80. Uh, April of 87, and he was murdered in uh, June of 87. So that was like three months when I had that conversation, uh, when he basically said, I just, I can't, I just can't. And, um, and then he was killed, you know, three months uh, later. And, and that was that. The guy, did the guy that killed, did the guy that killed him, what sentence did he get for killing him? Uh, nothing. Um, he, he got nothing. Uh, the way that the police looked at it so is that that's just, that it's just, well, it was just one less convict off the street. Wow. Um, wow. That's wow. I mean, they got, well, I mean, it was, that was a long time ago. So they, the cops got away. Oh, oh they got away with a lot more back then. Right. 
Well, I mean, the guy who murdered did. Uh, I know, but today that guy, I, I feel like, would, would have been convicted. I think that's fair to say. Uh, it, well, it would depend. This was in North Carolina, and the way the, the law worked back then, I don't know what has changed in all these years, but the way the law works is that uh, they look at your priors, and and then they um, look at your conviction, uh, and then they look at the, d the degree of what you're convicted of. And so if, if you have no prior arrest, you have no traffic tickets, you have no any kind of arrest, and then depending on what the conviction is, which they would probably call it involuntary manslaughter because he broke into the house. And so that's the least kind of murder. And so with no priors and it being involuntary manslaughter, you get the least, the absolute least penalty of whatever it is. Now, if you've been arrested a hundred times and, and you went out and committed third degree murder, first degree murder, you know, then, you know, that would connect up here and you would get a, a stronger sentence. Uh, but it was self-defense. It would be involuntary manslaughter. And I don't know what his priors were, but he didn't get anything. And that's fine. I mean, OK, yeah, uh, that, that that's fine. It's not something to be bitter over. Um, it, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we're not managed by bad things that happen to us. And, you know, I'm sad about it, but uh, I, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about it. And, and I hope that whoever killed him uh, has a wonderful life. I mean, I, I hope that uh, things turn out well or have turned out well for him. I don't know who the gentleman is. I have no idea who it is, uh, but I don't have any hard feelings or anything like that. It's sad. It's not the way things should be. But as we were talking about earlier, life's not fair. And so, you know, we can either complain about it or we can get up off the mat again and, and run through the wall, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. And do you still have some good memories of your brother and you? Do you have a few from childhood? Yeah, I have a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we were rambunctious boys. Uh, we did some stuff and, uh, yeah, I have nothing but fond memories. I don't have any bitterness, any remorse. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing to look back there and to, uh, regret. I see my life as a gift from God. Uh, God yeah. has given me a wonderful gift and it has positioned me to do what I do today. When people find me on Facebook, uh, people that I grew up with, when they actually see me on Facebook, as one gentleman said, Rick, I cannot get my jaw off the floor. I cannot believe that I'm, that this is you because they know uh, yeah. that I was a rebellious teenager who was going down a dead end road. They know that our entire family was doing the same thing. They know what happened to our, my brothers and so forth. And so when they see me today, they're absolutely shocked at, at what I'm doing. And, and so it is truly night and day. And so I see all of that as a gift that God has given to me. And I am super grateful to be in a position to where we can help people. And so when I'm talking to an angry teenager and he judges me as having it all together and, you know, born with a silver spoon in my mouth and all that kind of nonsense, uh, we just have a little talk. And uh, after I recalibrate his thinking, uh, then it's like, oh, there's hope for me, too. It's like, absolutely, there's hope for you. Uh, you can work through this and I want to help you do it. And that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And, and I was going to ask you, have you, did you ever make amends with your father? 
No, he passed away in 1978. My, my father was an abusive drunk. Uh, I was 19 years old. And so I was still in my angry stage. Uh, yeah. And so we had an adversarial relationship uh, for almost 20 years, uh, the full 19 years of my life. He started drinking when he was 21. He stopped drinking when he was 42. Uh, and that's when he uh, died. And so there was no reconciliation between him and any of his five boys or his wife, my mother. Uh, it, it was just all fractured. Uh, and he he died too soon, as one gentleman told me one time. He said, you still had some hating to do. And I wasn't done with my hating. Uh, and he died. And so I didn't get to finish my hating. But over a period of years, I worked that out. And, and so I'm no longer managed by what he did to me. And, you know, it's as good as it can be. But what we find in life is that uh, life is not neat. And sometimes there are jagged edges and everything is not wrapped up on, uh, in a bow and everything doesn't end like an American movie. And, and, and so there are relationships that fracture and never get resolved. But that in itself is an opportunity, an obstacle that turns into an opportunity to work through. And so I've worked through it. I'm okay with it. Uh, I would hope someday to meet him in heaven uh, where there is no sin, no death, no sorrow, no tears. And, you know, if that happens to be true, uh, it will be okay. But it will be okay nonetheless. But uh, we did not work it out. And that is the unneatness of life that happens sometimes in relationships. Yeah. And they always say, you know, especially the ones close to us and our family members, there's always unfinished business when they pass away. There's always those certain words or sentences that we wish we could have said, or maybe things we could have changed or, you know, you know a lot of, a lot of high insight. Um, but did you, do you ever, do you remember any good memories with your father? Do you have a few? Uh, he had great porn magazines that he kept, uh, <laughs> Well, that's that's a plus. That's good. <laughs> I guess that's something, right? Uh, deep down, deep down, though, you think he was a good human being. You think he met. You think just the alcoholism took over. Yeah, I mean that's a that's an excellent question. Um, because I, when I, I drink, man, I turn into a monster. People don't even recognize me. People even say there's drunk people, and then there's you, Rory. So I, <laughs> you know, I stay away from the booze, man. I. And, you know, one drink turns into 20 drinks. I, I can't stop. I'm not one of those people that can just drink uh, socially. It doesn't work for me. Now, I think the, the way that I work through it actually is the answer to that question is that, you know, I grew up hating my father because of the physical abuse. I mean, he was a horrible man. I mean, just he was a bad dude, man. I mean, he beat us all the time. Uh, all we've ever known is alcohol, cigarettes, drunkenness, etc. But anyway, um, but as I've gotten older and when I became an adult and started moving through life, uh, I began to recognize that life is hard and life hit me in the face a few times too. Life knocked me down a number of times as well. And then I began to understand uh, that my father stepped into life and it knocked him down. 
and he chose to crawl into a bottle as his solution. And I totally get it. I understand why he would crawl into a bottle because life is hard. And so when I stepped into adulthood and, and started getting hit in the face, I just chose not to crawl in a bottle. I chose to do something different, but I understand why he was drinking. It made sense to me after I became an adult. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying I understand why he did it. Now, unfortunately, uh, because of his insecurity, uh, because of a lot of internal soul noise that he had, he used alcohol as a way of satiating or calming down his soul. What he didn't recognize, which is what I was talking about earlier, he crossed that line to where alcohol actually came around and grabbed him by the butt. Uh, and so you can play with alcohol for a little bit and you can get drunk, drink, go out, have fun. But there comes a point, if you keep doing it, where alcohol will come around and grab you and now it owns you. And so he became what we would call an alcoholic. He became uh, addicted. And so now he's under the control of alcohol. He's no longer controlling it. So I totally get that. Uh, I appreciate the grace of God in my life. I appreciate God guiding me in a particular way that I did not make those choices when life knocked me down. But I understand. And so when somebody makes bad decisions, they do the stupid thing, whatever it is, I'm not their critic. Uh, I'm not their judge. I understand it because I'm an adult and I know how hard it is to live life. And I know sometimes you just get the heck knocked out of you. And sometimes it's hard to get up. My dad made a bad decision. He went into the bottle. He never came out, died at 42. I'm just very thankful I did not make that decision. And so, yeah, the memories are all good as far as I'm concerned. I don't look at the beatings as anything negative. It is just what it is. But, you know, we have to choose. Are we going to be managed by what other people do to us? Or are we going to be more proactive and, and do something about the hardships in our lives? And I just refuse to be managed by the bad things that happen to me. And how close, <clears throat> how close were you to going down that route? Well, um, and that, and now this is what I was saying earlier about jail being the best thing that ever happened to me. And I would put it in that context of the question that you're asking me. Obviously, my two brothers being murdered was horrible, but it was going to jail uh, that really was the turning point. I mean, believe it or not, I had hair that was down to here. I would like to have some of it back. Uh, I cursed like a sailor. I was very angry. And so when I came out of jail, I started cutting my hair. I cleaned up my language and I just started going down a new path. And so that's what I mean by the best thing that ever happened to me, because actually I was looking, there was a path already carved out for me because I'm number four of five. And so brother number one, brother number two, brother number three, they were already blazing a trail. And so it was easy for me to see this trail in front of me and where it was leading. And by the time I was 15, two of them were already in prison. And so here I am sitting in jail and it's like, well, this is a very clear path. There are no stoplights whatsoever. And I can just move down this path and I'm going to end up just like them. But going to jail as a 15 year old, it was a wake up call. And I decided during those five days that I am not going down that path. I am going another direction. And so that was the uh, pivotal moment in my life. And again, that's why I would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me or the worst thing became the best thing that ever happened to me because that's where I began to change my life.
And how is your relationship with your mother? Uh, it was good. Uh, she passed away in 2013 and, um, she actually became a Christian later in her life. And, and so she began to redirect her life she used as to, well. She used to be an atheist prior. Nah, no, we live in the South. And so uh, everybody down here is a Christian. All you have to do is ask. And, uh, but, it, but in reality, that's not true. Uh, there's a social Christianity uh, that really takes over a large swath of the South. And so she would be in that collective of people who say they're Christians, but in reality, they're not. Like uh, the ones that say they are, but they don't actually practice. They don't go to church. Yeah. They don't read the Bible. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just a, you know, it's like, you know, Catholics playing bingo, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but it's just something that we do, but it's, it's not meaningful, but, it, but later in her life, she actually became a Christian and then her life took another path. And so the latter part of her life, yeah, we had a good relationship. And of course she was always grateful for what I did the path I was going, she respected that because it's like, well, one of the boys is not blowing up. And, and so, you know, that's something to be thankful about. So, uh, yeah, we had a good relationship for decades. I ask you, we talked about the 80 1987 brother. What about 1997? Tell us about that incident. Uh, sure. Uh, he and his wife got into an argument um, and she shot him five times with a pistol. Uh, that was the, you know, that was the short side of it. Um, the irony is that they were born on the same day in the same hospital. His birthday was January the 20th, uh, probably um, 1957, maybe. I don't remember the year he was born, but they were born the same day in the same hospital. So they literally have known each other all of their lives. They went to school together. Uh, they later got married. Um, but the unfortunate thing, when two dysfunctional people get married, well, that's a mathematical problem. Now uh, it, it's putting two dysfunctional pro people in one container um, and, and combustion is going to happen. And uh, I don't remember how long they were married. Uh, they got married. Oh, oh uh, so they were shacking up. Uh, they were shacking up for years. And then when my brother got killed in 87, uh, they sort of got right with God, whatever that means. And, and they got married. And the irony is, is that my mother was shacking up with somebody as well. And so my mother and my brother, they had a double ceremony after my brother was married. And so my mother and the man that she was sleeping with and my brother and the lady that he was sleeping with, uh, they got married in uh, August or October of 1987 after I buried my brother uh, in June. And so they lived together for 10 years and it was just a roller coaster. Uh, they went out to eat one night. They came home. They were listening to Eric Clapton. Uh, Aren't you lovely tonight? I think that's what she Wonderful did. tonight, right? Uh, wonderful tonight. You look wonderful tonight. <laughs> I love that song. That's one of my favorite. I love, do love that song. Yeah, that's probably not a good thing to say about Eric Clapton because after that song, my uh, sister-in-law murdered my brother. Uh, it's, right. no, I <laughs> so I'm not going to put that. I'm, I'm not going to send that to Eric Clapton. And say, no, I hey, uh, they listened to this song and they killed each other. 
so no, uh, no, they, no, so keep keep going with that. They were listening to the song and what happened. Well, they came home and then uh, they got in some kind of argument. I don't know. I don't remember what's about. It was you know twenty six years ago, but uh, uh, she uh, was shooting across the house uh, from the bedroom down the hallway. You got the bedroom here and the garage here and right down the hallway, the front door is right here. So she was shooting from the bedroom down the hallway where my brother was standing. He got hit. So he walked, he walked into the garage or crawled into the garage. She went down the house, down the hallway, out in the garage. And she told me because I came, she called me first. Uh, I was the, by that time, my life was pretty straight. And so I was like, I'm like the designated person, whatever that people would, I'm the designated prayer at, at, uh, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, Hey Rick, would you pray over the meal? Hey Rick. And so I would be the person that she would call. So she called, uh, and I, I came, I, I left where I live here in South Carolina, which is two hours away. I drove two hours to North Carolina outside of Charlotte and I went to the home and, uh, she was in bed. I laid on top of her, uh, and I was holding her, I was hugging her. Uh, and just asking her, you know, tell me what happened, uh, what's going on. And because she was so, you know, shaken and tell me what happened. And uh, she told me, you know, that they got in an argument. They went to eat at this restaurant. They were listening to Eric Clapton. They came home. They got in an argument and she just started shooting. And she said, I walked out in the garage. He had crawled between the two automobiles. He was hit one time. And she said, I just I just did this. She just unloaded the pistol on him. Uh, she shot him five times and uh, and she she killed him. And so that was that. Now, I found out later uh, she took out a life insurance um, or she uh, added to her life insurance and made her. She was married before. My brother was never married. She was married before and had a daughter and she made her daughter the secondary beneficiary. Uh, and so she was primary beneficiary and her daughter was secondary beneficiary on the life insurance. And so that was two months before she killed him. And then she killed him. And very similar to my older brother, uh, because she had no priors, no arrest, no ticket. And they called it involuntary manslaughter. So she got community service for doing that one. Uh, in North Carolina, you get one. I probably shouldn't say that publicly, but you get one in North Carolina. You can kill one in North Carolina if you have no priors and it's involuntary manslaughter. So she got community service. Now, because she was convicted and got community service for involuntary manslaughter, uh, her daughter, the secondary beneficiary, is the one that got all the insurance money. I don't know what happened to that. You know, if my sister-in-law got a piece of it or not, I have no idea. Uh, and so that was, you know, I mean, that was, that was that. Now he was going to be the best man in my wedding. Uh, that was in, that was on April the 18th, 1997. I got married on June the 28th, 1997. And so he was supposed to be the best man. I remember him telling me that uh, when I asked him to be the best man, he said, Hey, I've never worn a tux before. I mean, we're just rednecks from the South. We've never done anything socially. And uh, so he was going to get to wear a tux and be the best man at my wedding. He kind of cried over that. And so we had a very good relationship, by the way. Uh, we had an excellent relationship. And, of course, he was murdered. And so, you know, he obviously was not part of our wedding. And was he walking the straight and narrow, clean background, good, good like didn't ever got in trouble? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, he was in prison and all that, but uh, the, the murder of my oldest brother was a, a climactic thing, you know, like say my mother got married, my brother got married in that double ceremony. Uh, right. He started living his life right, and he lived a straight life from that point forward. He well, got a job. He was a hard worker. But the problem is, is that because of what happened to him as us as a child, he had some really volatile anger issues, and he never really got the help that he needed. Uh, and so that anger would flare up from time to time, and that's where the conflict was coming from. What was he in prison for? Oh, uh I, I can't remember um, probably ripping stuff off. Uh, I, I, I don't, rem I don't so exactly. Not, not violent crimes. No, he never killed anybody. Not, not like, no. Yes. I know like physical assaults of mostly stealing stuff. Yeah. There could have been some assault. My older brother kidnapped somebody. Um, oh, wow. And, Your older and, brother kidnapped somebody. Yeah. So there was kidnapping and, and there were assaults and, and there was stealing there's, there was also drugs as well. So it was somewhere in that family of assaulting, stealing drugs, whatever. And uh, he did, you know, three or four years. I don't remember uh, in prison. I do. I do know. I asked him one time, I said, well, what do they do to you in prison? Do you have to bend over? And uh, he just looked at me and said, yeah, I mean, you, you have to bend over. And so they do bad things. And uh, and that had an effect on him too. Uh, I mean, it was just a prison. Prison's an impossible life. Uh, and, but you know, I mean, that's the way it is. And so he carried the residual of what our dad did to him and then whatever happened to him in prison. And so he never really got his soul right. Uh, he got his life right, but there was just a lot of internal dysfunction in his soul. And from time to time, it would come out in arguments with his wife. And she had her problems as well until one night it just really uh, blew up after Eric Clapton. I'm not I'm not throwing shade on Eric Clapton. but Right. right. No, I, I, I know. And I want to. Did, did that. Was that ever on the news? Did that make the news when she shot him five times? And how the hell is that manslaughter? I mean, I mean, come on, man. That's second degree murder or even first degree murder. She well, yeah. The, the insurance policy, that's first degree murder. That's, well, like, that's the kind of shit you see on cold case files and all these shows. Yeah. Well, okay. And movies. This, is, this seems like a movie, man, taking the insurance policy. Right. We're not living in the social media age. And so we have the Monroe Inquirer. So it's the town of Monroe. It's the Monroe Inquirer uh, that's probably read by 35 people. Yeah. Uh, it, it's 1997. And uh, it's just a bunch of rednecks. And that's how they settle their business. And, uh, you know, it, <laughs> she had more people in the court than, than we had. When we went to court uh, for the case, it was my grandmother, me, uh, my mother and my fiance that I later married. Uh, so it was, well, we may have been married at that time, my wife. So there were four of us and then there were 200 and people from the community that came out in support for her. And, uh, and, and I took the stand and, and I told the judge exactly what she told me. Cause when I was holding her that day in good faith, thinking that, you know, 
she didn't do it intentionally or whatever. I was trying to care for her. And so as I was holding her and she, 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 that's what she said. I went out. I mean, she intentionally walked down the hallway where she could have walked out the front door and ran, but she walked by the front door all the way to the end of the hall and walked through the door to the garage where he had crawled. You could see the blood stood between the two cars. And as she said, I just stood there and I just unloaded on him. I mean, it was, it was intentional in my view. And that's exactly what she told me. Uh, but one of the things I realized, and I, I, I learned this earlier, but, you know, truth and a court of law don't necessarily sync up all the time. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's really just who has the best attorney. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't wish any harm to her. And, and you know, actually, I, I hope that she, but this is what I hope. I hope that she becomes a Christian because I believe that my brother was, he was a dysfunctional one, but I, I believe that he was a Christian. Yeah. And, and, and I hope that they can stand in heaven someday, worshiping the person that we put on the cross, Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so that's my prayer is, is that she will turn her life around and, and that we all die and go to heaven and we can worship God together. And, and I think there's some irony there that the person that you killed is the person that you're standing beside worshiping the Lord. And uh, I, that's my prayer for her. I want her to have that experience. I don't have any ill will toward her because uh, bitterness is like, the bitter person, every time they talk about something, it's like taking a, uh, taking a cup, a sip of poison. And I, I just, I, I, again, I can't be managed by that as I was saying earlier and I'm not. And so I wish her the best. Um, but what she did was wrong. There's no question about that. I mean, it's amazing how forgiving you are, you know, especially if somebody does something of, of that, you know, extreme magnitude, uh, I just, yeah, I mean, but at the same time, you're right. If the person carrying the, the, you know, the, um, the bitterness, the person carrying, you know, the resentment, they're the ones that have to feel more of the pain and rather than just forgiving right. and moving on. And I, I think not enough people understand that. I think too many people just go through life holding grudges, hating people and never getting proper clarity, which is unfortunate. Um, was there alcohol or drugs involved on that on the, when the shooting happened? I mean, there must have been, right? Uh, yeah, uh, they had alcohol at yeah. the uh, at the rest at the restaurant that night. I, I'm I'm not. It's it's 26 years later. Uh, I do know they had alcohol. I don't know uh, the amount that they had, but yeah, alcohol was in play for sure. Do you still talk to her? No, I haven't seen her in years, and I, I don't think that I. When was I the last? Will. When was the last time you ever had any contact or saw her? Oh, it was back uh, when she was convicted. Do you know uh, where it, she's at? Have you ever like like? It's still the same place. She probably still in the same place. Uh yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I I don't. Uh, I'm not looking for her. Uh, I have uh, written, you know, on, uh, written articles about it. Uh, you know, on our website about my brother being murdered and so forth. And so, I mean, there's content out there about it, but I, you know, I'm not interested in confronting her or anything like that. I, I just wish her the best. And when you talk about 
you know, forgiveness. You're absolutely right. Uh, I've been doing counseling for a hundred years now. I mean, I, I counsel people all the time and I see exactly what you say is that people are managed by what other people do to them, even after those people are dead. Yes. And, 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 and it's ironic. It's like they're dead, but you're still controlled by what they do, what they did to you in the past. And, uh, that's just not that that's a, that's a, that's a bad path to go down. And I'm just not built to carry bitterness. None of us are, I'm not, I'm not built to be a victim. Um, I'm just, none of us are. And, and if you try to be a victim for too long, it's going to take you to some bad places. I hear you, man. I hear you. And, I, and I'm reading right here that you launched the life over coffee global training network in 2008 to bring hope and help for you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. So explain the curriculum on that, because I do agree with you what you said earlier on in the show that two people meeting for coffee can change everything. You know what I mean? Like it can bring anybody together, you know, and I believe anybody in this world can find common ground on any subject, even if they hate each other's guts. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of us are more similar than the political atmosphere likes us, likes us to believe, you know, believe if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, we're all cut from the same Adamic cloth. Uh, right. We came, we're all the same. Our stories are different above ground. I mean, you live in California. I live in South Carolina. There's people who are black. There's people who are white. There are Democrats. There's Republicans, etc. Above ground, we're different. But when you start bringing things down to where we live at the level of our heart, we are all the same. Everybody is the same. And that's why we can relate to anyone if we would take the time to relate to them. No, they're not going to relate to having two brothers being murdered or, or maybe having an abusive drunk dad. But that's above the ground. But below the surface at our heart, we have the same temptations of being bitter, being angry, being unforgiven, being frustrated, being full of fear, regret, remorse, vengeance, etc. Those are all temptations that we struggle with, which makes us very common in our humanity. And so once we get beyond the surface where we're all different and begin to recognize that we're cut from the same human cloth, then we can start uh, interacting with it, each other and we can help each other at the level where true transformation happens, which is at the level of our hearts. And so my desire is to teach people how to do that. And that's why we chose the name. Now I've been doing counseling long before we launched this ministry, many, many years before we started life over coffee. But uh, when I turned 48, I think something like that, it's like, you know, I really want to focus. I want to focus on this one thing because I have a heart for humanity. I, I, I believe that there is a solution found in God's word. And if we can just bring people together. Now, we use coffee as our brand because it's ubiquitous. Everybody understands coffee, plus it communicates a vibe, a tone, a feel. If you say coffee, if you're in Africa, if you're in the DR, if you're in the United States, Canada, it doesn't matter. Everybody knows what coffee is, and so it's, that becomes our brand. But 
out of that, we have two people. And of course that communicates conversation. And so anybody can do life over coffee. And so what we do is we teach people how to work through their problems, whether it's marriage, parenting and children, siblings, friends, it doesn't matter. Uh, we can sit on, as we say, we can sit on over coffee. So I produce a lot of content on, I mean, you name it, I've written on it. Uh, and it's all on our website. And because we are a 501c3, uh, we're donor supported. And so we give our resources away. And so people can walk into our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com and they can just take they can just take the resources uh, and we produce everything in a read, watch, listen format. And so you can for those that like to read, you can read hundreds upon hundreds of articles. For those of you who want to watch videos, we've got well over a thousand of those. I've got over 1500 podcasts and we got tons of graphics. There's just a ton of information there. It would take a person 10 years uh, to consume everything in our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. But all of those resources are free and they're all geared uh, to help people to do life over coffee, to work through whatever issues they are, uh, addiction, alcoholism, uh, being a rebellious teen and being a victim and racism. It doesn't matter. I, I've written on it. And so it's all there. That's my heart. Uh, I have been given a great gift of, of being a dysfunctional kid. And so now I flip the narrative of that. And I want to use that in a redemptive way uh, to help people because there's so many people that are struggling. No, I agree. And how often are you podcasting and, and doing speaking engagements? Yeah, I drop three podcasts a week. Uh, nice. And so audio yeah. and video. Yep. Nice. Uh, well, I got I got two I got two media networks. We'll have to talk about getting you on, getting you on, getting your show on my network. I'd love that. We got a lot yeah. of great we got a lot of great shows on both networks. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, and I'm I'm an engineer. I've been building technology for about ten years. So I build apps. I build artificial intelligence. I build virtual reality. I build blockchain, and I built the networks from scratch. So it's all all good stuff. Well, I don't know anything about that. I'm an idiot. Uh, but, but I'm, no, I'm you're a very smart guy, man. You're one of the best storytellers I've ever interviewed. And you've got a voice for radio and for media. I mean, you can just go on and on. And it, it's remarkable what you've endured, what you've lived through, you know, what you've overcome and the stories you're telling and how forgiving you are and how you just let God take over. I mean, I think that is just so beautiful. Could, couldn't you say I have a, a face for Absolutely. video? You, yeah, you've got the look for it. You've got, you've got it all. Like when I see you with the microphone right there, when I saw you in the green room before you came on, I thought you were a talk show host originally. That's what I originally, I mean, I thought I knew what you did with the coffee thing, but I also thought you were a talk show host because you don't have ask that me. look, you have that demeanor, you know? Just don't ask me to stand up because I don't want you to see my underwear. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any. I don't know anything about technology. Uh, I'm a one-trick pony. Uh, yeah. I'm a. I'm a content creator. I'm an educator. I teach people how to do life over coffee. But behind right. the scenes, the technology, the things that you just listed out that you do, I'm pretty clueless about. Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, if you can help. Uh, I, I can help you with cut. I can get, I can give you content if you can, uh, yeah. uh, put it somewhere and make it happen. But yeah. anyway, uh,
Yeah, yeah, we absolutely will make it happen, my friend. And, you know, before you take off here, in 1990, it says you earned a BA in theology, and in 1991, a BS in education. Um, in 1993, you received or, or, ordination into Christian ministry. In 2000, you graduated with an MA counseling from the Master's University. In 2006, you were recognized as a fellow of the Association of the Certified Biblical Counselors. Wow. All very good stuff, man. You got a lot yeah. of degrees. You got a lot of degrees. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where they are. Uh, you didn't save them? You didn't frame them? No, I wouldn't frame them at all. I mean, they're in a drawer somewhere. I'm not sure where they are. Uh, I, I don't want to communicate a message that you have to have all of something to be able to have impact in the world. That's right. why... That's why my office is set up a certain way. There's no degrees or anything on the wall. I would not want anybody to come in here and think there's a two-tier system. You know, I've got to be yeah. this. I got to have Absolutely. this degree in order to be something. No, you don't. No. no, no, you don't. You can be something oh, yeah. the way you are now. You, oh, yeah. you, there's not this two-tier system. And so yeah. I, I intentionally deconstruct that mindset uh, that anybody uh, whether you're 15 or 55, uh, you can make a difference in this world. Uh, it starts by making that first decision. Or are you going to get up off the mat? Yeah, of course, you can get education at some point down the road, but education is not what really makes you. There's a lot of intelligent people who are totally dysfunctional. And, and so it's more than having academic training. And so I don't want to communicate that message. But yeah, I've had the opportunity uh, late in life. Uh, I didn't start college till I was 25. I started my master's degree when I was 38. Uh, and, and so it wasn't a privileged life. It's been a very hard life. I've made some very bad decisions, but it goes back to what you were saying earlier. You've got to make a choice. You know, are you going to get up and keep moving forward? And through that, yeah, there has been the accumulation of some uh, educational accolades, I guess. Uh, but it's really about who you are as your character. And you don't gain character in the classroom. You gain character by uh, stepping into life and making good decisions. And so, yeah, uh, those degrees are, uh, and I, I honestly do not know where they are. My wife has them in a file cabinet somewhere, but but they're all legit. I would say that they are legit degrees. They weren't given to me. I earned them. No, I know. I know. You're a very, very smart guy. I could talk to you for hours. I got to get you back here soon. Tell everybody where they can find you, get involved, all that good stuff. Yeah, just come to our coffee shop. It's uh, lifeovercoffee.com. The resources are free. And again, you can read, watch, or listen. Uh, and th there's some deeper studies that you can do. We have LMSs, learning management systems, all online courses. People can go down that route, you know, if they want. But I really want to produce the content so that people could have it in their hands immediately. And because of what Steve has done for us by giving us the iPhone, we're really accessible. And so just go to lifeovercoffee.com and just enjoy the content. It's all free. God bless you, sir. Keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. Thank all you. All right. Thank you, brother. All thank right. You, see brother. ya. Thank you, brother. Everybody, another episode in the books of Rory Sodder and the news. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Until next time.
I'm Rory Sodder. God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody.